I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where we come from. So who are you and where do you come from? My name is Lisa Wallace and I am from Baskin Lane, Dublin. Baskin Lane, up the road, Malahide, that kind of way. If you're heading towards, if you're on the Malahide Road and you're going straight out, um, it's a little lane just before Concealy Church on your left-hand side. And Lisa, you and I are friends through our mutual friends, Alan and Carl. Yes. And we became friends over the past few years. But actually, when I went, remember we went back to your house? Yes. And I met your mum and all, and there's a huge connection with the Kellys. Yes. And the Wallaces. Yes. And what is that connection? It's through the horses. Okay. So your husband, Paul, mm-hmm. uh, was in Toronto on our farm in, wow, well, must be many years ago. Yeah, it would, so... The thing is, Paul came home. So Paul and I met each other when I was 20, so 23 years ago. And he was due to go back to work for you guys. And he didn't. He stayed. Yeah. Now, he tells me he'll be a multimillionaire now (laughs) if he never met me. Most of them that left, that went over. I mean, there wasn't just Paul. There was so many guys that they're in Dublin. They're involved in the horses. They wanted, they needed something else. Mm. It wasn't the business that it is in America in North, in Canada, and actually all over the world. Mm-hmm. So in Ireland, standard bread, or what you'd say, trotting horses, it's really a small business. But internationally, it's huge. So in the likes of North America, Canada, it's bigger than uh, flat racing. Um, the Melbourne Cup, there's a, there's a, a, a trot race in the Melbourne Cup. There's the Prix de Marique in Paris. There's, so all over there is trotting just in this country because of the turf club and all of that really crazy political stuff that goes on. Um, it didn't catch on. Mm-hmm. And everybody always said, you know, why didn't you just go into thoroughbreds? Because obviously we had the stud farm and we had all of that kind of stuff. And the reason we didn't go into thoroughbreds was because my dad absolutely loved trotting. Mm. That was what he loved. That's what he'd been doing from the 60s. Um, what is trotting for okay. anyone who doesn't know what anyone trotting is? Anyone who doesn't know is you've seen it, unfortunately, you've probably seen it in the worst way, which is where you see a guy sitting on a two-wheeled, they call it a bike or they call it a sulky. Mm. 
driving the horse from behind. So it's they go to very high speeds. People think there's a real kind of... I could literally pull anybody around on a sulky. They're made that they have very little weight in them. Mm. So I could pull a 25 stone man on, on a sulky. It's That's the, how it's made. So the weight is on the back of the sulky and then you've got the shafts that hook into the harness that's on the, on the horse. Um, so the horse is not carrying any major weight. So they can get up to very high speeds. It has become, in Ireland particularly, very um connected with the traveling community and also involved in just in kind of local kind of council areas kids get this passion for it um and they just they just love it Mm -hmm. the problem is is that we don't have we did have a place called port marnock port marnock raceway which we had for years and years and years um in the 70s, I think it opened in the 70s, like when I was a baby. Um, before that, there was, um, they used to go out to Black Church out and think, it just was going on for years and years. It used to be in Rohini. There was a racetrack in Rohini. Um, and my dad just had a passion for it. And he just wanted, he turned his hobby into a business. And that was something that very well, especially this kind of quite out there hobby, um, harness racing. So we ended up buying a farm in Toronto um, and we were breeding horses over there and racing horses and doing very, very well. Um, but obviously my mum and dad love Ireland and uh, they'd go over for a couple of months and then come home. Um, my brother Gary, he emigrated over there. He stayed over there on the farm. And my brother, Alan, as well, he went over. He was there for about five years with his wife, uh, Mary, and my nephew, Stephen. But again, the connections are back home. We have the stud farm here in Dublin. And it was one of those things that you couldn't... It was viable, but it wasn't that viable Mm. because we still had to run here. So Mm. Alan eventually came back and Gary stayed. And that's who Paul worked for. Yes, but it's, right. Okay. Yeah. So Paul would work, but my dad would have been the man. He's mm. he was the guy that like he's great vision. Like even um, an exception to the rule in a lot of ways because uh, I say he was um, was a man before his time. Um, he had he could see no, didn't see color, creed. Um, sexual orientation he didn't he was actually so ahead of his time mm-hmm. that you know even for even on women's issues like he was like always believed that myself and my sister could be as successful or more successful than any man you know like he was just very much a woman a woman's man mm. not a womanizer mm. He, in his mind, he was with the best looking woman that's ever walked mm. this earth, mm. which is my mother. Mm. So, uh, but he was brought up by women. Mm. He was brought up by my granny and um, his mother, which was his grandmother, and all of his aunts. So that's how he didn't meet his father until he was 18. So he is, my my um, grandfather uh, was in the British Army 
and he was stationed away all over the world. I mean, the, you know, one of the biggest regrets in your life is not finding out really what the history is yeah. of your grandparents. Yeah. Like, I know a lot about my mom's side, but not so much about my dad's side. Where was he from, your dad? Kilmainham. Okay. Kilmainham originally. And he was very bright in school. Um, he was just... He was just a very bright young man, but he went out and started working, like, very early. And um, he went away, he was away in the army, um, underage. Obviously, this all these things, you know, when you hear these stories, you're like, how the hell, Daddy, were you in, like, in the British Army when you were 15? Oh, I was on such and such as uh, papers, you know, went over. And then they discovered that he was underage. But he raced, he was Great Britain canoeing champion for the British Army. And uh, he did a lot of stuff like that. And then he came home when he was about 17, I think. And uh, was told to come back, come back to the army, you know, when he got to 18, whatever, mm-hmm. come back. And um, he came home and he arrived back in Kmainham and they'd moved. <laughs> Which was something that happened, I believe, years ago. And they had moved from Kilmainham to Ballyfermot. I didn't tell him. No, it was just what I don't. I think you know. I I come from a very unusual family, anyway. You know, but yeah. when he came back, you know, it was like the people down um, Ladies Lane, which is where he lived, was like were like, oh well, your mum has actually have to, got a house up in Ballyfermot, and he was like, okay, and he was fit. Like my dad was so fit. Like he was a gymnast, um, runner. Um, everything you can imagine that man did, like mm. fit, which makes what happened in, in his later life even harder. Mm. But so he said, like he just took a run and decided to run up as far as Ballyfermot and found his mother, and everything was great. My uh, uncle Eamon was there, my uncle Billy, and that was it. He just was like, well, "What am I going to do?" So he went out and started then with um. Started business with a horse and cart, selling coal and loading up. He always worked. He worked on the docks. He worked. He was just a man that could just get anything done. Mm. Then, kind of a bit of a love story, met my mom, 18. She always says she was, <laughs> she was seeing somebody else at the time and... She was walking down and spotted my dad, black, jet black hair, in a white T-shirt, seeing him. That was it, the two of them fell in love. And they were married and all within like a year. And uh, the rest is history where they're concerned because that was probably, probably is and was one of the most stable, solid relationships I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I do see friends and stuff like that have brilliant relationships. But to pe- for some for a couple to overcome so much, they had five of us. Um, I have three brothers and I have a sister. Um, and we were brought up in a very kind of, very happy, extremely happy um, life. Uh, I lived in Ballyfermot until I was, I think, eight um, and then we moved from Ballyfermot out to the country, Belcamp Lane, mm. which was like, oh my God. So we moved from a regular 
corporation house that was done, you know the usual exactly what everybody Ballyfermer does mm-hmm. big extension on the back mm-hmm. you know everything done to it and my dad grew out of that my, mm. my I don't know whether my mom would have necessarily moved as much because she had her mom down the road on DC's road she had um obviously my granny was on Kylemore road um my dad's mom and then so everything was all around her. We were all in school, walking distance from Black Ditch Road, which is where I was, which was where I was uh, brought up um, until I was eight. And then we moved from there to Belcamp Lane. Um, and that was like a complete and utter culture shock for us because we were, it was a big old country house, you know, um, it had no inside bathroom, an outside toilet. <sighs> Um, now very quickly was fixed, mm. but um, we used to go over to friends of ours uh, to have a a bath over in actually just up the road from here in Santry Estate. Mm. The Harrises lived there. Uh, Jerry Harris was my dad's best friend, and uh, his wife Teresa, who's now passed away, and all their children. We would go over there to have a, until we got our bathroom done, but it just seemed. So that was okay. Like, it was just normal. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd go over there. They had a piano. (laughs) They could, you know, it was just a completely different Mm -hmm. kind of thing. We'd go over, have our bath, whatever, sit sit over there at the weekend. And uh, then come home, back over to Belcamp. And at that time, the house, as I said, was um, an old farmhouse. And my dad got very quickly to work, turning it into somewhere he could make a business from. Mm -hmm. Um, Wallace's Co. was up and running at the time. Small operation. Um, probably two thr- trucks, maybe. Mm. Two trucks. Um, then he put some stables up. And uh, he... One of my vivid memories of my dad uh, is... I don't know whether you're old enough to even remember this. There was a huge big snow back in the early 80s. I remember and it blanketed everywhere. Mm. I was a baby, but I remember. It was a huge... And mm. The lane, Belcamp Lane was snowed in. And I remember my dad coming out, because all the trucks, because at this stage we had like big 40-foot trucks bringing in coal, and we were supplying most of the coal men on, on the north side of mm. Dublin, and probably on the south side as well. It, was, it turned into a huge business. Um, and I think we had about seven or eight Wallace's Coal trucks out on the road at the time, but everything was coal. Everybody burnt coal. But anyway, it was the big snow, and um, obviously nobody could get, trucks could get out, nobody could get out. My dad went out and he got a, like a coloured horse, you know, like a big, uh, you'd probably see it like a shire horse, like big hairy legged horses, which my father loves, and I love too. And uh, he yoked it up, and, um, and you know you have these visions of your dad being Superman or whatever. And he yoked the horse up. What does yoke the horse mean? means that he put the harness on with the reins and um, the head collar. And he got like a makeshift kind of pallet, for want of a better word. Like a makeshift sled. Mm-hmm. And he giddy up the horse up the road and he just... He literally went through the snow like a plough. The horse was pulling and he cleared that road. And I remember looking, going, wow. Like, 
I seen him standing on the back of the thing with his holding the reins of the horse and just flying ahead and just going, Oh my god. But he had like he had been in a lot of movies. He's been in a lot of films, being the horse guy yeah. driving the um the carriages. He was in like Dracula. He was in loads of movies that were shot here in the seventies. Yeah. My mom was in them, extras. They were always working. Mm. My parents didn't really drink. Mm. They didn't they went out maybe once a week. Um, they had a good social life. They were always in the Kingsland and Dame Street or they were in um, different restaurants. Or they used to go to dinner dances and stuff like that. But I never seen my parents drunk. Like they never, they just never drink. They, mm-hmm. Like there was always people back in the house. There was always like a curry on mm-hmm. in the kitchen on a Saturday night. We'd have a babysitter. Babysitter was terror. <laughs> the babysitters were probably terrorized by my yeah. brothers. But anyway, we had mm. babysitter, uh, two babysitters, um, and they'd come home, and friends would all come home. But I never remember. I don't think that people kept drinking the house. Kept. Mm. I think there was always a bottle of whiskey. There was always a bottle of brandy. True. True. There yeah. was always something like that. You always had, and mm. in my house, we always had alcohol. Mm. It was just like one of those things. People would, and they would just never be touched. Mm. You know, you'd have a drinks cabinet. Yeah. And the drinks cabinet would be like, you open it up and just every type of alcohol you could imagine. But nobody ever drank it. Mm. It was only when a visitor would come or something mm. like that, you'd get the drinks out. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I remember my dad doing that. But he had he had driven the Lord Mayor's coach in the the first time the Lord Mayor's coach had been bit, been driven in, I don't know, an awful long time. Um, they dusted it off and brought it out. And we, he, he drove it in the... Um, the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Wow. In 1979. And I remember being in town and being on O'Connell Street and seeing him going by. And that coach is the match of the Queen's gold coach. Okay, wow. So it's quite a spectacular coach to see. Um, And you take all these things for granted, you know, until you kind of get older and you kind of go, God, like he really did. He did. He did an awful lot. Um. And he kind of, we were always, we were just an extension of my parents. There wasn't, you ne- like even my mother, like she was very young at heart. Like I never remember my mom ever being like, like my other, my, my friends, mummies, mm. you know, my mom was very attractive, mm-hmm. very trendy. Um, do anything with you. They weren't big disciplinarians. You just had to be, you just had to behave yourself. Um, don't remember ever really being smacked or anything. Mom probably would have given me a smack mm. on the backside or something, but dad definitely never. He was like really a pacifist in every shape and form. Because I remember when I first met Paul all those years ago, mm. I remember the Wallace name being banded about. I remember Emily Wallace being so beautiful and Liam being a gentleman. That was the top conversation and the dinner dances and all of this glamorous, like mystical world to me because there was dinner dances every week. There was, and Marion was always getting dressed up, going off. And there was something that I never, because we weren't part of that community. So it was like, wow, this is like Hollywood, like kind of lifestyle. Down in a track in Port Martin. Yeah. It sounds so weird because people didn't understand. And people don't understand. Mm. I mean, like, the saddest thing ever is Port Martin closed down this year. Mm. Which is, you know, really 
from a historical point of view, we probably should have bought it, but we didn't. Mm. And that's, you know, what should have, could have, would have. Mm. Um, and it's gone now. So that camaraderie and all of those men, I mean, all of my life has just been, like it's always been business. Business, business. We were we were brought up in the business. The, F, the offices were the house. The meeting places were the house. It was never... Dad got into the car and went to work. Never. Work was in the house. So we had an office, obviously, but we didn't. Dad was like mom, mom and dad were running the business from the house. Mm-hmm. And everything was done from the house. We lived on the on the. In the coal yard, so we had a cut off like you drive in the to the main gate into mm-hmm. our house. And then there was two entrances in on either side, which were coal yards. Mm-hmm. Um, but we lived there in the middle of the coal yard and had a really good life there. Like, I mean, we were very lucky. We Darndale was behind us. Um, great, great affection for, for Darndale. Um, always kind of tried to keep my hand in there. Um, there used to be a priest there, Father Terry. He was a great priest uh, to do like Secret Santa and do stuff like that. Mm. Um, we never forgot that that's where, you know, that's one thing in my life it's always been. Never forget where you came from or never forgot forget who you meet on the way up mm. because I'm guaranteeing you, you're going to meet them on the way back down again. Mm. So you, there is peaks and flows in everybody's life. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, some of my my uh, best friends. Um, we played in Darnley. We met in Darnley. We had great. Uh, we had different, completely in one way, completely different lives. Another way, exactly the same lives. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was it was, it was an interesting time. Um, it's the early eighties. We, like, I mean, so like in my mind at that age, like. The one of my strongest memories of Stardust Fire, like that's one of my strongest memories of the devastation. Like I was only probably thirteen. The devastation of all of that. It was like when people were ringing from England, they were ringing from America, they were ringing from like all over the world, ringing the house because it had it was such a a huge catastrophe that it happened. It was reported on everywhere, and we were getting phone calls. Um, from like Australia, from people going, did you, you know, did you know anybody? And it was only saying Dublin. It wasn't mm. saying so close to yeah, where we were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like people didn't realise how mm, close we mm. were. The boys were just that little bit young. They mm. were just slightly below the age that would have been at the, at the, at wow. the start of that night. Um, like a, a guy who's really like my brother, uh, Philip Gilligan Gillow, we call him. He, his girlfriend was there. So it was really very poignant time. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could nearly, even when I talk about it, so I wasn't expecting that to pop up, but mm-hmm. even when I even speak about it, everybody, I think everybody that was on this side of the city at that time was deeply affected by it. Mm-hmm. If you didn't know somebody, you knew somebody who knew somebody. Mm-hmm. It was devastating. Um, and I remember that so clearly. Like, it's like, it's like a, I can remember what I was wearing. 
you know even that's how much that's how visceral it is Mm. um i remember walking through and the the feeling of just there was a quiet there was a quietness over darndale coolock all of that walked into Northside. it was like devastation I've that, never thought of it like that. Though it was it was absolutely mm, like I get it completely, but yeah. I've never thought of it because everybody. I mean, we hear they're continuously fighting all the time about it, and it was absolute disgrace what happened that time that night. Like that night will never be forgotten. And even though I directly, personally, didn't have any family member, mm. that didn't matter. It was. A community of people. And I think that's the difference with then and now. Mm. And I never thought I would be speaking like this. Mm. That I would be saying, years ago, it was about a community. There was a community atmosphere in everything that was yeah. done. There used to be um, summer projects and all of these things. And I used to think I was a helper, you know. Like, I'd be kind of like... Mom, can I go on the summer project? Yes, of course you can go on the summer project. I didn't realise that we were going on these summer These people, kids that I was with, never went anywhere. Mm. Never went anywhere. Like, this was the summer. And we'd be in there in the middle of it all, loving mm. life up in, up in the mountains, camping, doing, just having a great time. Mm. And there used to be, um, in Darndale as well, there was a great youth club. And uh, again, I was walking through the field, because as I said, I live in the middle of middle of, of mm. the park. Everybody know where it was. Mm. In the middle of the field. Walk out the out. We had a little. We had built like well, we kind of worn a little pathway mm. across out the back door, and then we'd be right, right into Darndale, then up to um, the youth club, which was run by a man called um, Joe Whelan, and he just ran a great youth club. And it was just like I. I even now, look at the kids and go, they have nowhere to go. Like, we would go on, like, a Tuesday night to be, like, a video. A video. <laughs> you know, VHS. We, we had a video. We yeah. had a video player in the house. So we'd had a video from, like, the early 80s. Because, of course, all the racing was coming in from mm-hmm. all over the world. So we had to have a video player. But, um, yeah, there could be, like, 30 kids sitting in a room watching a TV. And then they'd be all different than the disco on a Friday night, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, we did all that. Um, we all worked. My brothers worked. I worked. Um, I was in, obviously I was in school. Um, but we all worked. There was there was no. Um, you went to school. You came home. You were involved in the business. That was just the way it was. There wasn't like. I'm sure there's laws against it now, but there wasn't at that time. Mm. Everybody worked. The boys worked. I worked, everybody was working. If you were working, you were happy. Mm. Um, and I always say, you know, a busy, mind, a busy mind is like a perfect mind. Not all the time, but sometimes. Um, and during that time, my dad had bought a shopping centre up in Leakslip. I was working up there as well. Um, kind of, I was in the Holy Rosary in uh, Edenmore. Oh yeah, I wondered what school you went to. Uh, I went there and it was a kind of a case of, I went to school, I was dyslexic. And, but highly, like never had, like I, I, I had a great memory and my dyslexia wasn't really discovered. Well, I was, I had never known what I had. Mm. I just knew I had a little struggle. 
a lot of struggle. But my parents instilled so much confidence in me that the fact that I was struggling with school really didn't impact me the way it probably would have impacted other kids. Mm. Because my parents would say, well, you're great at this or you're great at that. You can turn your hand to anything. And, you know, Lisa, stand up there and do a poem. And I, because I had a great memory, Mm. I could recite any Mm. poem that I heard. I only had to hear it once or twice Mm. and I could recite it. Kind of how I got away with murder with a lot of things. Because obviously I could remember but it was only when something was put in front of me that I hadn't heard before yeah. that I had to, I would struggle badly. Um, and as I got older, I think as well, and I got into business, um, I've, I've, I always say now, I don't believe you can um, oh, outgrow something, but you learn these great tools mm. for dealing with things. Mm. Now I've no issue. Like I go in, if I have a problem, if I am overwhelmed with something, then yes, I would have a problem. I'd have to say, listen, I'm going to bring this paperwork home. Mm. Normally it's legal stuff or whatever. Mm. I'm going to bring it home. I'll research it at home. That's fine. I'll do it on my own time. I could get somebody to read it for me. I have no issues now. What probably did have at one stage, like a Mm. little bit of insecurity about being dyslexic. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of, looking back now, I've achieved so much in my life that I really don't think it's that big a deal. I understand that children now Mm -hmm. suffering with it, Um, And parents with children that have dyslexia are, they're lost a lot of the times. Because Mm. school is made for, it's cookie cutter. You know, Mm -hmm. every child is stamped exactly the same. Yeah. So if you, and you know, you always say, and they didn't live up to their potential. And, you know, they were really good in school and all, all of those things. There are kids that just slip through the the system because things weren't cut. Mm. Now we have so many different things. We have, you know, all of the different um, learning difficulties, the ADHD, which would have been the boy that was disruptive or the girl that, that was disruptive in class, probably wouldn't have got any attention whatsoever. Dyslexics, mm. um, so many different types of learning disabilities. Mm. Um, I would probably say my dyslexia helped me in one way because I had to learn quick mm. or I would have been lost. Yeah. Do you think you would have been like, you, you just said that if it wasn't from your mum and dad in the business that to be able to give you those opportunities if someone else completely. wouldn't have them? Yeah. Mm. Not, not, nobody, not mm. everybody has the opportunities I have. I had. Um, and not everybody had the kind of encouragement as well that I had. And that's what I always say. It's so much, it's so, because so many, when I was, when I was, how I discovered I was dyslexic mm-hmm. was Duncan Goodyear, who was, who was a swimmer um, in the, an Olympic, an English Olympic yeah. swimmer. He came out and said he was dyslexic. I was probably about seven, 16, 17 mm-hmm. at the time. And my mother turned around and said to me, that's what you have. God. And I was like, what? She goes, that's what you have. That's what they told me you had years ago. And I was like, why didn't you tell me? And she said, I didn't want to be telling you stuff like that. Yeah. Knock your confidence. And I was like, but it helped a little yeah. to know that I wasn't like a complete, like, dope. Yeah. She was like, no, no, that's what you had. That's why me and your daddy weren't ever worried about you. We, like they said, you're highly intelligent. We got you, um, what did she call it? She called it something. Not analysed. Some word she uses, yeah. which is hilarious. Oh, good few times. And no, no, they said you were 
very highly intelligent, above average intelligence, but you had dyslexia. And I was like, well, that would have been nice to know. At least I could have said to the teachers, I am dyslexic. But they probably didn't know what it was either. Although, you're, you know, it's not as prevalent as it is now. What it is now. Can I ask you, when did things start to change then? Your dad, the coal business, did it go to the side and then the no, trunk no, no, came no, over no. or what no, happened? No, no. What happened was um, my dad... My mom, my dad, and my sister were at home on a Tuesday night, fourth of December, nineteen eighty-four, watching Dallas. I was up in the supermarket at the shopping centre we had up in Leakslip. My brother Gary was gone off to meet a girlfriend. My brother Alan and Liam—they were married and they were living in their respective houses. Alan was living in Leakslip. Liam was in, I think, uh, on the Malhide Road. Mom and Dad, Amanda were sitting there. There was. As I said, Dallas was on. My dad was on the phone talking to somebody there, and they were watching TV. And my mom heard like a bip on a horn, not a beep, just like somebody rubbing their elbows off a horn. She had taken down the curtains because my mother is clean, crazy to wash them. Um, and we had so many windows in the house. There was like, I don't know, 10 windows in the front of the house, 20 windows altogether. And my mom jumped up to look out the window and she went, Liam, they're coming to rob the house. These guys were getting out of a car and pulling down over their faces. I'm, I can only relay because I wasn't there. Yeah. Pulling down over their faces. Um, what are they called? Balaclavas. My dad thought in his mind, they're coming with bats or something like that. So he grabbed Amanda, threw her into the kitchen, and Amanda was 10, and pushed my mom up the stairs, like, because our, our sitting room was in, our stairs was in the sitting room. And my dad actually thought he was going to be face-to-face with somebody with a pickaxe handle or with a bat or with something, mm. and thought that's what he was facing. And what happened was... They, we had a big door, a mahogany door, and they broke the window of the sitting room with the gun. And the gun went off, a shotgun. And my dad was at the end of the stairs and he was lifting his arm. And as he was pushing, the bullets went in and went in through under his arm and ricocheted off his spine. He hit the ground. The guys never got in. They jumped in the car and went all people, you know, there's loads of different scenarios you hear. Mm. Like, obviously, my sister, Amanda, she, we, you know, the telephone dial was on yeah. on the handle of the phone. And she just got down on the ground, dialed 999 and was yeah. like, Belcamp Wallace is cold. My dad's been shot. Belcamp Wallace is cold. My dad's been shot. My mom came down the stairs and my dad was on the ground and he was like, Emily, get me a priest. And she was like, no, no. And he was like, and he said, I'm paralyzed. And he knew. And he was 30, 39 years of age. And it was like, it was like, I don't remember because I drove in after it. Mm. But from what I gather, ambulance was there. Police was there really, 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 really quickly. Mm. And my dad was brought into the matter. And at that time, um, Margaret Thatcher was over 
doing a big thing. And all the gunshot specialists, because obviously the IRA and all of that yeah. were in Dublin. So when my dad got to the matter, he was 99. My mum said she could look, she was in the, in the thing, she could just see the pulse on his neck stopping as he was going in. And uh, he went in, I, and he went straight into surgery. Um, and they didn't know how long he was going to be there, but it's happened because my dad was on the phone. The phone was still wasn't put hung up, so the phone was on the on the floor. So the man that was on the floor on the phone heard everything that was going on. Jesus Christ! So it was it went around Dublin so fast that when my mother was walking out, because they were saying to, for my mom to go home, mm. when my mother was walking out of the matter, it was just a sea of people all there. It was just a sea of people. I drove in. I was. I didn't drive the time. I driven in by one of the guys that worked for us, and there was guards in the on, in the at the at the hall door, and they were like, "Who are you?" And I was like, um, "I'm I'm Lisa," and they were like, um, "What's your obviously the guards?" No, I was. What's your mm. surname? Well, he was like, "You better go in." And I was in there. And the girl that used to clean for us, um, Claire was there, and my sister Amanda was there, and Amanda so calmly turned around and said, now sit down. She was 10. And she was like, sit down, I have something to tell you. And she was like, these guys came, daddy got shot. And it was like somebody going, what? My daddy? No. And the worst thing about it is, it's, 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 an, unnat- it's an, unnat- an unnatural thing to happen. Somebody goes out and they are in a car accident. Mm-hmm. My dad falls off a horse. He's in a, a, you know, he's in a race and he gets mm. into an into an accident on the racetrack mm. and he's left paralysed. Or he's in a car crash or he's something like that. That's kind of explainable. Mm. You know, he, kind of, mm. he was up on the back of a truck, the truck pulled off, he fell off the truck. Mm. There's loads of reasons why somebody can become paralysed. But being shot mm. is in another stratosphere. Because, number one, people have great imaginations. Mm -hmm. And they like to think of loads of different... I mean, like, there was headlines in the newspaper, which were really damaging for us as kids. Northside millionaire, coal tycoon, shot in robbery. um, Just, like, I couldn't even... The amount of headlines were just ridiculous. And the truth of the matter was, it was a robbery that went wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, they wanted something more. Mm. They wanted to put something more into it. They wanted to have something juicier than mm. it was. It was juicy enough. It didn't yeah. need, it didn't need any bells and whistles. It was, four guys came. Shot my dad, breaking the window of the house. Got in their cars and left with no money. Because I didn't nothing. ask. I, uh, when I met your dad, I was like, what happened to him? And they were like, he got shot. And I was like, what? Yeah. Like, that's like 20 odd year old me going, who gets shot in Dublin in them years? Like, and well, they were like, you yeah. see, at that stage was at the beginning of what they called the tiger. Yeah. 
holdups and all mm. of that, where people were targeting people with money. Mm. The worst thing about my dad's situation was, my dad was um, just a really hard worker. Like this man was just, he had the Midas touch. Like he really did. And he was originally from Ballyfermot, of course. Everybody, so much, like we laugh, and I'm out with Alan or whatever. Mm. We talk, and we always say, all the great people are from Ballyfermot, <laughs> you know. Um, like it's, it's such. A, I, I love to say I'm from Ballyfermot mm. because, apart from the fact that my granny and my uncle Thomas is still there, and all of those people are all well, my granny's passed away now, but my granny's house is still mm. there and all that, and I've aunts and uncles and all of that, and um. And then obviously Alan's family as well. Uh, and then there's loads. There's absolutely loads. Like Joe Duffy. There's absolutely yeah. loads of us. Mm-hmm. Like, um, So it's kind of a real happy, um, it's a happy connection. Mm. But the guys that actually did it were from Valley Farm. Were, were they caught? They were caught later. Mm. Um, but unfortunately not for... My father's um, thing. But the police told us that they were the suspects in Dublin's a very small place. Yeah. But when my dad was shot and we got the call, obviously, from the hospital to say it's like I'm I'm repeating something like as if this happened last week. Um, They said my dad had survived, which we were all like, oh, thank God, thank God. And he was paralyzed. But we didn't actually know what paralyzed meant. Mm. Like, we really didn't. We didn't know what paralysed meant. We probably probably really thought it was just maybe something that you could get over. Yeah. And especially my dad. was like, mm. he could overcome anything. Mm. So your funny thing, stories that went around was like, like you know, there was a couple of old older men, you know, would say things like, you know, he when he's uh, when he when people go, he gets up and goes for a run and all that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I actually think that a lot of people couldn't accept it. Yeah. That my dad ended up in the in the wheelchair, and he was a T three paraplegic, which is a little bit higher, and he would have been quadriplegic. He would have lost his arms, so he had his arms, mm. and uh, he was in um, Dunleary uh, rehabilitation for nine months. Um, after that, and I can't even tell you like what a like absolute legend that man was. Like every young lad that having difficulties or problems after being paralysed mm. they would be at my house they'd come out in the rickety wheelchairs what was it like though for you Lisa to actually see him after the fact well I was a complete daddy's girl mm. still am mm. um, what I remember is I think logically speaking my father gathered us all around and said to us as a family, I want nobody to feel any anger about this. Anger will kill you. We had th- I had three older brothers, three teenage brothers. So, you know, they were at that age, not teenagers. They were like married, like mm. Alan, Liam and Alan were married. And Gary was like 17 or whatever. I was 16. So Gary was, sorry, I was 16. Gary was 18, 19 and 20. So they were at that age and anger was filling their bodies and their their being. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, you can't get angry. We can't. 
we have to forgive. And I remember the struggle that the boys had forgiving. And my dad going, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. So I learned forgiveness at a very, very young age. And I learned resilience at a very young age. Because when I seen my dad, this is again clear as, clear as day, mm. went in, when he was in, he recovered very quickly medically. Mm. Medically, and they said it was because he never drank or smoked and he was so physically fit that that's how he recovered so quickly. So what, he, what we were left with or what he was left with was a compromised diaphragm, obviously, because diaphragmatic breathing is how you breathe. Um, so he was gone from the diaphragm down a little bit higher, actually. And so he was... Went, I went to see him in Dunleary and uh, he was on this bed that twisted upside down mm. and it was to keep the blood circulating. And as, as, as the type of father that he was, he was never like a, a dad that was just, he was a really very present, mm. present dad. So for us, when we seen it, it was just a matter of, it was so weird that when the bed would turn, we'd all just lie on the ground. It was... <laughs> It was, it was such a natural mm-hmm. thing just to keep his face, like mm-hmm. just to make sure he was there. And he, all he would do would be tell us, you know, it was a shock. Like I, I, the biggest shock I think was there was a guy in the bed in the ICU across from my dad and he was like wrapped in cotton wool for want of a better word. He had been whipped into a, into a mine um, and he'd been just, it was just in ribbons. Like he was absolutely in ribbons. And it was shocking to see him mm. because it was just, he was so bad. And my dad looked like my dad. Yeah. Because there was no marks on his face. Mm. And it was only the wound under his arm. And then obviously the scar tissue or the scarring. But I didn't see that because yeah. he was on his back where they had done the surgery. Um, there wasn't tubes coming out of him. He was, you know, when I seen mm. him, there was none of that. Mm. So all I seen him on was on this bed that went upside down, which was kind of a bit crazy. Mm. And the boys the same. And but we kept looking at this guy over there, you know, we were like, God, he's he's bad, you know. Mm. Um and my dad remember my dad like going, God, poor fella, he's only a young fella. He's only nineteen. He's like, Oh, all this. And we were like, we were more pitying the because this is the type of man he, he was. Mm. He could literally take the sadness off himself and tell you to look at somebody else that was worse off. Mm-hmm. But the weird thing is that guy got up and walked out of the hospital. He he didn't have a he, he did have a spinal injury, but wasn't like my dad's. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met so many other guys, and the people over in Dunleary are exceptional. Mm-hmm. They're exceptional people, like they really are. There was guys, rugby players. There was um, swimmers. There was a, a guy that was in a. Um, one of those, you know, the, you know, you run and you fly off the side. Of oh, the, yeah, like paraglider. Paragliding. And mm. um, a guy that was a paraglider. Uh, there was a guy that was in a robbed car. Um, there was like so many from all different lives, you know, from everywhere was in that hospital. And it didn't matter. You were, everybody was in the same ward. Like there was no, there was different wards, mm. but everybody was exactly the same. 
And it didn't matter how much money you had or how, how little money you had. Everybody was the same. And that is a great reckoner in this world. It doesn't matter what you have. At the end of the day, we are all exactly the same. So you can't buy our way out of anything. We could have sold everything, moved into a caravan or a tent for my father to walk. We would have done it. But there was nothing you could do. There's nothing that separates people when these things happen. Yeah, true. We're all exactly the same. Everybody. Um, the nine months that he was in, uh, thing, I, I kind of, you know, I was the first to see him in a wheelchair. Um, being the type of person that I am, even a young um, girl, I was just one of those people. I would make my way up to Dunleary. Mm. Like I'd get on the dart, get off the dark, walk through Dunleary, maybe get a taxi, maybe get a bus, mm. make my way up to see my dad. And, you know, he'd ask me all about what's going on in the business, what's happening. And my mom was constantly there. But my mom was with my dad every single day in that hospital. Her and her friend, they went every single day and they never missed one day like it was just it was a total devotion that my mother had she never never took a day off and she had to step in and run the businesses and we all took we all did Mm. our part did our bits as well we all had to but my mom had to step in and run the business and then luckily they were always like hand and glove together Mm. and then the boys were running the coal business I was running the shopping center was just was it was all a big it was all just a big keep ourselves alive mm. type of thing. That's what it was. Um, some things happened during that time that were like hard. We got over them. Like what? Um, one of the things I suppose was people took advantage of my dad having the accident. Mm-hmm. Um, set fire to our office where all of our books and all of the monies that were owed was in. And... Um, you know, people, we we really, we weren't equipped to deal with everybody. People will take advantage if they can. Mm. If they're that type of people, they're going to take advantage. Yeah. And they don't care. Like, mm. that doesn't mean that I have any, like, hard feelings against anybody mm. in, in in my life. There isn't anybody. But it, people do take advantage of situations. Mm. And that happened to us. We were taken advantage of a lot. Um, but again, my dad just kind of came out and, you know, them days there was no big like rehab, you know, you were given a wheelchair and you were sent home. That was it. Um, and the wheelchairs were gammy. I mean, they weren't like any of the lightweight wheelchairs yeah. that we have now. Um, they were like, I mean, they were heavy. They were hard to push my dad. I remember seeing him in the gym up in um, Dunleary and he had to tran- he had to learn how to transfer from the floor to the chair. And if you can imagine when you're sitting on the floor, the chair was nearly at his shoulder and he had to lift himself by putting his arms on the back of the chair to a seated position. It was hell. I mean, it was looking at him doing it then. It was like, oh, my God. Physically, he was so strong, but mm. still, it didn't look right. I I remember looking at him doing it, going, I felt as if I was seeing something I shouldn't look at. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah, it was like, because it was a struggle, because mm. his arms were shaking as he was lifting his body up. 
And the day he was put in the chair, the gravity, when, you, when you've been in a lying position, mm-hmm. laying down for such a long time, and then obviously when you're putting into a sitting position, you're very nauseated. Mm. And he was getting sick. And I remember, because he never got, he never, might, like, said, he, he like, as always, everybody has these visions of what their father, Yeah, I never seen my dad ever, never even, I think I, I think he had a cold once. Yeah. And like, was like, it, you know, took to the bed and was like, oh, daddy has a cold, oh my God. Mm. Oh. Mm. But no, he was never sick. He was never, never seen anything like that. And, um, was I remember grabbing like fruit bowls and just throwing the fruit out of them and mm. just holding the bowl there and going, you'll be okay, you'll be okay. And, I, you know, after that, like my mom... Was that hard for you? Um, it's hard to kind of turn around and say, was it hard? It was... Yes, it was hard, but not in the way that probably think people go. It was more that you were kind. We were trying to make things back to normal. We were trying to, everything was going to be normal. So the fact that my dad was in the wheelchair now, that was going to be normal. So my parents had a way of normalizing the most bizarre situations. Counseling, not on your Nelly. There was none of that. There was no like, let's all go and talk about our feelings. no. We had to go, we had to work. It was like, my dad came out of hospital after nine months and it was like, we have to work. Like, because we'd lost so much when he was in the hospital for that length of time. There was no choice but to work. So it was never a case. And, you know, myself and Amanda do talk about it. And we go, and even now with my mom, we say, mm-hmm. you know, do you think you could have went to counselling all those years ago? She was like, that wasn't even an option. It wasn't even an option. It wasn't offered. It wasn't on the table. You just had to get on with it. There was people, like my dad was so strong-minded. So many of the guys that were paralyzed at the same time as my dad, their marriages broke up. That was one of the big things. That was one of the big shockers. Mm. A lot of the guys, they would go home. They would be put on a sofa. They didn't know the things of pressure marks and all of that kind of stuff. Um, they could go home, get an infection, die. Um, there was a young guy, 17, in the hospital with my dad. He had a motorbike accident. He was left paralyzed. He went on to do really well. Ended up emigrating to America, getting, getting married. Did really well. Married and married one of the um, nurses mm-hmm. from the hospital. That's quite common as well. Is um, it? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but my dad came out. My mom and dad just learned. They didn't have any, no nurses. No, nothing. They just learned. They traveled the world. Mm. The two of them, like two lunatics, get on flights, going everything with no equipment. I mean, like they had no equipment. Mm. Not like it is now. Like now, I mean, by the time, like as as things progressed with my dad, we got the, you know, he had a bike. We used to go on his bike and do the Tour de France every day. The bike was an automatic cycling machine that would move his legs constantly around. Wow. He'd be on that all the time. Did you ride again? He did. Uh, he went out, we got a special um, seat made for him and uh, he had to prove that he could roll off the track if there was an accident. So he raced twice and won. And, uh, but all of our nerves were gone, like completely gone. But he used to jog the horses all the time. Yeah. Um, and he just got up and jogged the horses and he loved it. Um, he What's that mean? What t- t- so tell me what that physically looks like okay so we got a chair made mm. uh which was like 
like a bucket chair, like a racing car chair that my dad was strapped into. That was attached to the sulky. And my father, being the man that he was, would go at high speed around the track. We we have our own, we had our own track um, when we moved, but I, that's because we obviously moved from Belcamp Lane, yeah. and because uh, we ca- he came home to Belcamp Lane. Okay, so he came home. We built an extension at the back, bedroom, bathroom, all that kind of stuff. Most people didn't even have that. Mm. And then I came home from work one day, and my dad said. Jump in the car. He learned how to drive. Hand controls. Um, get into the car. Uh, I want to show you something. Drove me up to Baskin Lane. We drove up this long driveway. And he was like, what do you think? And I was like, it's lovely. He was like, we're going to move. And I was like, to this? And he was like, yeah. It was this big old house covered in ivy. And everybody that seen, would seen the house would say, are you going to just bulldoze that down into the hole it was built in? Because it was, yeah, it was was like all of the ceilings, all of the thing was a Georgian house, but the house hadn't been able to be maintained. There was people living in it. Yeah, people weren't it. They were living in one room, and so we, of course, the Wallace clan moved up. Mm. I mean, like, it's like it was like an invasion. (laughs) We all landed up there, and then you know, through time over time, a new roof Mm. was put on, new windows were put in. Of course, my dad, the first thing he wanted was the racetrack built, the stables done. Um, we had the supermarket. We had all the businesses going at the same time. And so, yeah, he was able to do it. But again, he was a man uh, that literally could see where he needed to go yeah. and which what he needed to do to get what he wanted. So, uh, yeah, he used to get up and he'd be jogging around the track. My mother would be saying, you know, the rosary down the house. Like, it never sat on my mother. When my dad was not there. Mm. So if he went out driving in the car, she was never settled. She was always, where's your daddy? Where's your daddy? Where's your daddy? Never. So even though he did drive and he did do all those things, and he drive, like I would be in the car with him. So I was his legs. I'd mm. get out mm. if we had problems with a tenant or something. I'd mm. go in. Always commercial tenants. My father said he'd never be a... Um, uh, own own houses that mm. people would live in because he would never be capable of yeah. ever evicting anybody. Mm. So that we we always knew to stay away from all of that. Yeah, still do. Never ever mm. bought a, a rental property to rent out. Mm. Um, always commercial properties. Because um, my dad used to say to us, if you're if you're able to put somebody out mm. of their house, well then rock and roll. But I'm not built like that. I can't do it. Yeah, they'd be living in it, and that's just the way it is. So we never did. And got loads of opportunities to buy loads of places, yeah, which just never would. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'd be in the car with him. And uh, we. W- I remember one time, um, it's a funny kind of story. We got a puncture and I got out of the car, got the jack out of the back of the car and all the rest. And I'm jacking up the car. Mm. And obviously my dad's in the car. Yeah. Because he's paralyzed. He can't get out mm. of the car. And this guy cause see, sees me, pulls up in front of me, mm. gets out of the car. Sees my dad sitting in the car, goes, you lazy heifer, how could you let your daughter, or didn't know I was his daughter, yeah. change the wheel. And he was like sitting there going, I can't do anything. Like, so your man didn't help, he wouldn't help us. And I remember my dad was la- like, he was laughing, to mm. be honest. He had he seen the joy, he seen the happiness of most things. Yeah. 
I was well able to change a tire. I've been changing yeah. tires since I was, you know, yeah. like we learned all of those things. Mm. Women learned all of those things in our house, you know, how to change a tire, how to do something. You were never going to be a damsel in distress. Yeah. You'd learn how to do it. So I remember, Chen, we were falling around the place laughing as we were driving Hilarious. the car. But nothing was ever, no, he made everything so easy. He didn't pity himself. So it was never a case that we could pity him. The only thing was, nothing really kind of ever bet paralysis. So if you broke your arm or something, or mm. you, you know, you fell off, split your head open, mm. or you did something like that, he did, you know, he'd be in a, in his fun way, would turn around and mm. go, well, at least you're not paralyzed. Aren't you lucky you're able to feel your legs? Oh, you know, if you walked in, you go, yeah. oh, my, my leg's killing me. Aren't you lucky you can feel it? So you kind of really yeah. copped on quite quickly mm. what not, you know, what not to complain about. And then when did life start to change for you? When did you move on and started having your own life seeing people all of that kind of things um well i think the house was crazy baskin was crazy and we were also enmeshed in each other that when i met somebody i met a guy when i was 20 um i'd always had boyfriends and stuff like that but this particular guy and he was so normal I didn't do normal I never understood what normal was he was normal he came from a normal background daddy worked you know mom stayed at home his father had retired all that kind of stuff so he was very normal and so we I met him and I, I, I was married to him what was the wedding like huge big huge wedding um I was 21 my mom and dad didn't want me to get married, but they kept saying, he's a nice guy. So, you know, we let her get married. Mm. But, uh, yeah, the wedding, uh, previously, Polly Yates got married in red, and I wanted to get married in red. My mother said no. What got married in red? Polly Yates married Bob Geldof. Okay, in yes. In this red ball yeah, 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 yeah. And I wanted to get married in red. And she mm. was like, you're not getting married in red. So I ended up getting married in pink, <laughs> which was quite unusual at the time. Um, and the dress was... Stunning, and the, the like. It's hilarious when you think about it now. Like the the veil came in from LA because you couldn't get the veil pink over here at the time, and so I married this guy, and um, that's when my life changed. Tell completely. me completely. Well, I married a guy I said who was normal, mm. and uh, normal in my sense of the word. And when we we, we bought a house in Swords. In River Valley and Swords, um, a detached house, um, which again was so unusual for me to live in, because I mean I used to forget to pull the curtains. It was all these mad things, you know. You forget to do mm. like not so stupid now, but then when I was that age, you'd forget to you know pull curtains, pull blinds because I, I lived in a field. Lock the door, yeah, yeah lock the door, that, all yeah. that stuff. So I married this guy, and uh, he was an aviation engineer, and uh, he worked in. Uh, not in the airport actually he worked in uh, a place over in um over in the nice road and i just fell into domestic bliss um as i said my mum and dad didn't want me to get married but there was no red flags not to get married mm. there was like this was a solid guy you know she's going to marry him they kind of used to laugh i mean you know your listeners would probably laugh and you say, say this you know they used to say i don't know what she sees in him but mm. He's obviously good to her and that's it. Yeah. So anyway, I married him and uh, we were together and it was hell. 
So I went from not an easy life because we always had responsibilities and we always had, we were never in any kind of illusion about how life worked. Yeah. So it wasn't as though I came from this like really precious background, but I was we in our, in our family, I was precious, like mm. all of our family is, like every one of the kids have their own feelings about how they were treated when mm. they were growing up. Um, so I married this guy and I stopped working for the family, which was like a big deal. Um, so I ended up working. Um, I went in, I actually didn't know what I was ever qualified to do because when I sat down and told them everything that I had done, mm. my mom had hairdressing salon, so I, I was a qualified hairdresser. I had run the shopping center for my dad. I had done so many different things. It was un, it was just unreal. So my husband just did not like the idea of me continuing to work for my family. So he kept saying, why don't you get a job? You know, you won't be working all these hours. Everything will be much easier. So I went and I went and I had a meeting with um, Foss at the time. Was it, was it Foss? Had it turned to Foss at that stage? Yes. So I was married in 1990. Uh, Valentine's Day, of course. Stop you know, Lisa. I mean, I'd have to do it on Valentine's Day. <laughs> uh, big pink wedding dress, five bridesmaids, five, five, five bridesmaids, three Flower girls, groom, um, little page boys, page boys, the whole shooting gallery, 265 people. I got married in uh, Concili Church um, and then the reception was in um, the Grand Hotel in Malahide. And my brothers had had a double wedding there back in my God, about a couple of years before me. So. Yeah, so then I got married and so I had the house and everything was like, and I was, I'm good at sewing and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So I was a real, like, had a sewing machine, making curtains, all that kind of stuff. And um, I realized it's so weird because, you know, now everybody lives with their partner before they're married. Mm -hmm. I didn't live with Dave. Okay. I got married, as they used to say, from my mother's floor, which is an old saying. Mm -hmm. I didn't live with Dave before I married him. So really, I didn't know. Mm. I didn't know the extent of what I was going to go into. And we didn't have all these words. And we didn't have all of the say, all the things that people can say now. Mm. Um, and I hadn't seen it. So I didn't recognize what was going on. So I was married. Um, again, domestic treasure. I mm. <laughs> uh, got a job. In a very unusual, I got a job working for um, this uh, new, it was, it's called plastic injection molding. It sounds crazy. Yeah. It was when they, when they changed the laws that um, plugs had to be sealed on. You couldn't just, you know, change the plug yeah, like yeah, the way yeah. you used to. So all like fridges, washing machines, all that kind of had to have these plastic injection molded mm-hmm. things. So it was this, it was a very kind of technical job that I ended up getting and doing very well at it. Um, so it was working for Foss and uh, working in this place and I met loads of different people. And again, it was like one of those things like the dyslexia doesn't even come into it. Mm. I was doing reports and I was doing all of this stuff. Then I met a guy. Was, of course, I had to continue to work a little bit for my for my dad because yeah. of the shopping centre. Then I met a guy that was actually renting one of the units office and he said to me, would I come and work for him? And I was like, okay. And I ended up being a manager in Heaton's in the square in Tala. And I, all I wanted was to have a baby. 
that was all I, all of my dreams was to have a baby. And um, well, that wasn't happening. So I ended up going over to all the doctors and uh, getting tests and all this kind of stuff. And they were like, you have a good few problems and you probably will never be able to conceive on your own. And I was like, oh, okay. Me, like, it didn't matter whether I conceived the baby or not. Mm. Any baby would do me. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody's, any child that was available. <laughs> yeah. So um, I went through all of that kind of stuff and kind of dealing with it. And again, as I said, from coming from this background that I come from, you know, mom be volunteering eggs, you know, <laughs> somebody else be, you know, it was always yeah, like yeah. never, never, nothing was a problem. We could mm. always get around it. Did your husband have a problem with that? Uh, no, he was adopted and uh, he had a very unusual um, adoption. And he, I think it kind of suited him in one way, but I didn't realise that it did. Mm. He was a very heavy drinker. That was what was the first thing I realised. And I only realised it by accident. Yeah. One morning I was going out to work. It was really early. He was on shift work. I was going on, and there was an orange juice poured on the kitchen um, worktop. And... As I did, I just picked the orange juice up, thinking that he hadn't drank it, mm. and threw the orange juice back. And because I'm on a drink, straight away there was alcohol in the mm. in the in the glass. And um, I was like, "What the? That's well, he must have poured that last night or something." Mm. I, like that's that's so weird. Like I again, this wasn't like my parents. This wasn't like alcohol all over yeah. the place or anything like that. I was only starting off, so mm. there wasn't. So I, he ended up being a chronic alcoholic and I just spent my life worrying all of the time. Like, is he going to crash the car? He was, he would drive all the time. Eventually he lost that job in, in, uh, as an, as an aviation engineer. I never knew he lost the job. He'd get up every morning and go to work. I'd go to work. I only found out later on that he would wait to, for me to leave, to go to Tala. To work and he would turn the car back and go back into the house it was crazy and you actually can't people like do you know that's still happening today in so many houses it's mental mm. and i was like going this couldn't happen to me yes yeah. well i didn't actually to be honest there wasn't even a this couldn't happen to me mm. i wasn't even aware of it happening and the first glance that i got i knew he was a drinker and that really upset me but i couldn't tell anybody because it wasn't as though, even though my parents would have been like, just come home. Yeah. Like that's straight away. They would have, it was never under this, you made your bed lying. Mm. It was like, if you want to leave, leave. There was never, mm. you had to stay. Um, so the first whiff that I knew that we were in serious trouble was I got a big bonus in work. A big bonus at the time was five grand. Yeah. Like, it was a huge bonus. And I went up to the EBS to pay ahead on our mortgage. Our mortgage was really low. Like, I mean, I think we borrowed like 35,000 or something mm. like that. So 5,000 was a lump mm. and straight away up on the escalator went in and I was like, hi, I'd like to put this off my mortgage. And they said, you mean pay your arrears? And I was like, I have no arrears. I managed all of the bills. All Dave had to manage was the, mm. um, the mortgage. That's yeah. all he had to pay. I paid for mm. everything else. And I was like, no, no, no. And I had all these yellow slips like that would be, you know, you'd get stamped when mm. thing. And I was like little technical thing, you know, that was filed away and everything be filed. I was like, I have all the yellow slips. And so what he would do would he'd go in and he'd pay in a in, in a in a branch. It wasn't the way it is computerized mm. now. They'd give him a yellow receipt mm-hmm. 
and the yellow receipt would be handed to me. I would put the receipt into the mm-hmm. into the thing. Well, he wasn't paying the mortgage, and I remember going. I was no mobile phones or anything at that stage. It was ninety one, ninety two, ninety two, yeah, ninety two, and I worked my shift and I came home I was a manager there and I was a, quite a responsibility I was things was got a, a lot of employees we got kind of finished maybe half nine ten mm. o'clock at night drove home uh to swords put the key in the door walked in the door he was sitting there you know usual you know the the working his work clothes hanging over the chair mm. all then started to kind of make sense like it was like all these things start falling in place why is his clothes always there why are his shoes always there? Why is everything always in these positions? And he never did anything to make it look like, so he was never like trying to cover up, but like by being a great husband. Yeah. You know, making sure the garden was cut or making sure, he wasn't never doing anything like that. So there wasn't anything that he was overcompensating with. Mm-hmm. So it was just, he'd be there. And um, I said to him, there's a mistake. Obviously I wouldn't attack him straight away. I said to him, mm-hmm. and I went, it was, there's a bit of a mistake. There's something going on with the EBS. They're, they're saying that the mortgage hasn't been paid. That's ridiculous. Yes, it has. And, you know, the whole gaslighting thing then, you know, mm. they're thinking, I'm going down to them in the morning and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay. And again, I let him go off and come back mm. and lie to me again. And and I was like, thing, and then I was like, we have to go down and deal with this together. So I went down and then discovered that, of course, the mortgage hadn't been paid. And the money that I was giving was off arrears. <gasps> So kind of said, look, again, kept it all to myself. Don't tell mm. the mom and dad. Don't tell anybody. Um, and I really did want to leave. But I felt I not that I wasn't, I felt that I couldn't. Mm. It was going to be a failure if I left. Mm. Well, little did I know. Um, and then lo and behold, I wasn't feeling well. And... Couldn't really put my finger on it, why I wasn't feeling well. Thought I had kind of a gastric bulge or something like that. And I went to my GP and I was like, I'm just not well. I just don't know what's, what's wrong with me. And uh, well, and he said to me, well, we know you're not pregnant. And I was like, no, no, we're not. I'm not pregnant. Um, and he was like, look, we'll do it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A urine test just to make sure whatever. And then just for divilment, he said, I'll do pre- and he did a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. And he was like, I don't know how this is after happening. So it was like one random egg, one random sperm. Wow. It was just that random. That's how random it was. And it was like, when I went in, I was like, no, this can't, be, this can't be happening. I mean, it was nearly made. It's so funny that I nearly made a liar out of me because yeah. all of these tests I'd had, all of this stuff I'd had done, everything. And then all of a sudden I'm pregnant. But I was like, well pregnant. I was like four months wow. before I discovered I was pregnant. So I went down to told my mom, you know, the usual. I was like over the moon, thought this was going to be, you know, I was always going to be like the inner six happiness have this child, you know, do all this stuff that we're supposed to do. Uh, I was going to breastfeed. I was going to do all of this stuff. Um, ended up working all the way up, um, of course, uh, getting prepared. Dave wasn't really working at the time. He was in and out of jobs. He was working for different companies. Was he happy or pregnant? Um, he said he was. Um, he feigned at a really good job. He feigned happiness. Um then I went, I went in on a regular visit, you know, to, on the thing. And this, I had a particular specialist because of my condition. And he was like, uh, yeah, you're going to have this baby. And I was like, yes, in four weeks. And he was, no, no, you're having the baby now. So it was like the emergency, emergency C-section. And he was like, do you want me to call anybody? And I remember going, no, call nobody. And he was like, okay. Are you sure you don't want to call your husband? And again, as I said, there wasn't really mobile phones then or stuff like that. And I was like, no. And I went in and I had an epidural and this beautiful baby was born. And on your own? On my own. Do you want your mum do? No. My ma- my mother. God. Well, my, mo- my mother would cry if she, if she even thought you were a neighbour. And if yeah. she thought you were having a cesarean section, she would probably have a heart attack. Oh, my God. And she had five children. But for me and Amanda, no, she just... Did not want childbirth for us at all. She just was like, no, it's, even though she, she had all of us, like, we're all big, huge babies. Like, no, she just, she just, she cries at that. She thinks that it's the, it's the most wonderful thing, mm. but the most harrowing thing a woman mm. has to do. She just is one of those people. Mm. So, no, I went in and I had him. And uh, it was grand, actually, because I'm a bit of a, a bit of a weirdo like that. I do like doing stuff on my own. I do mm. go to hospital on my own all the time. I do mm. all that stuff on my own all the time. So I didn't really, and then obviously then people were called to say that I'd had a healthy baby boy and I was ill. And, um, but everything was fine and I got out of hospital. I just had a C-section, I got out of hospital. Dave came to pick me up from the hospital, he was drunk. I got in, I drove the car, put the baby in the back of the seat and went back to his mum's. And uh, my milk hadn't come in. And I was like, have you got all the sterilizers? Because I hadn't bought that before I had the baby. 
have you bought all those? And he was like, uh, no, I didn't. And I was like, oh, so I got into the car and I drove over to the Omni. After having a fucking section. Yeah, came back to the house, leaned forward to pick Sam up and my stomach just <laughs> burst open. And uh, I said, did, again, didn't panic. Just said, can you ring an ambulance? My stomach's after bursting open. Ambulance men walked in the door and they were like, uh, yeah, well, you have to have a baby, you're hemorrhaging. And I was like, no, my stomach. And he was like, no, no, you're no way that happens. They were like, oh my God, keep your knees up to your chest. Had Sam in my arms and they were like, you can't let, take the baby back in because he's been discharged. And I was like, the plaster is still on his back. Don't, he can't go smell his breath because Dave was drunk. Yeah. And uh, they were like, okay, we'll put you into this, um, like an annex until the doctor can come and see you with your baby and make sure that you can't be put into general population with that child. You know, because the baby had left the hospital and they don't let babies back into the maternity ward. Oh, my God. So anyway, between the jigs and the rails, I was put into a room and they forgot about me for 24 hours. And um, when I came back out and I was brought in to the general ward, the master of the hospital came down. It was a lady. And she put her hand into my stomach and she pulled out all these cloths and she was like, yes, your stomach is completely open. We have to bring you back in and re-suture you. And I was like, OK, I was in shock. And it was from that moment that I ended up going back into hospital, getting the surgery. Sam was allowed to stay, which was amazing. And I was re-sutured again. And I'll never forget the pain. Like the C-section was nothing in comparison. This was like bees burning me was like really the worst thing I've ever felt so that was grand and um, went up and I used to have to lift Sam by the scruff to get him into my arms you know like by, by yeah. the by the blankets and I'll yeah. put him into my arms and then a couple of days went by and I kept saying to the nurses my legs are killing me my legs are killing me and they were like oh yeah you need to get moving around anyway because this 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 the stitches were quite intense because I'd reinforced sutures put on of course, what happened did I get blood clots in my legs. I was rushed to um, the matter. And it was, but there was no nursery at the time in, at that time it was closed, 93. Mm. Um, there was no nursery opened. It was under, I don't know what was going on. I think they were doing the whole change when they took the babies away. Yeah. Until when they leave them with you. I think that's what yeah. was happening. So my, Sam was left beside my bed. And one of the other mothers that just had a child was keeping our eye on Sam while I was over in the matter. It was mental. And um, so there was a big kind of heave-ho. The matter was saying, um, she's a general problem with blood clots. We have to treat her in a general hospital. The Rotunda were saying, she's a maternity patient. She's had to be treated. And, and obviously I went back to the Rotunda because where my son yeah. was. So I ended up staying in hospital for about six weeks. After that, and uh, Dave was still coming up and down, drunk and whatever. But anyway, mom and dad were there and I left the hospital and went back to Baskin Lane yeah. with Dave. And um, I was on crutches. I never forget getting out and seeing my dad's face when he seen me and the baby strapped around me. You know the way you'd have the baby mm -hmm. wrapped around you and uh, me on crutches and he... He burst out crying, like seeing me. He was like, "My poor baby," and I was like, "But look, look, look at the look, look at Sam. Look, look at the baby. Like, look, mm. look at him." And he was like, "Oh, he's gorgeous, gorgeous baby." But at this stage, he was like, he looked like a giant because he was he was small born, but he was now 
seven weeks old. So oh I was bringing home a seven week old baby. Yeah. But everybody was like the size of him. Because he really only thought he was newborn, but mm. he wasn't. And when I brought him back in for a six weeks checkup, he was 12 weeks. So <laughs> he was a big baby, but he was tiny when he was born. Mm. And then I went back to work. There's a big story that is so long and drawn out about Dave and all of his carry on and what he did and all that. And then one day, he just never came back. Never came home. Never came home. It's like the story of the man that went out for cigarettes. You know, you hear these stories Mm. and they never came home. And he never came back. And it was like, what am I going to do? I wasn't really worried about what I was going to do because I knew I could manage. Mm. But it was more like, where's my husband? Like, yeah. like, I'm a, like I'm a married woman with a child. Mm. Like, where is he gone? Never seen him again. Like, I, Never? Never. Like, Sam is 30. We've never seen him. Sam has never met him. Oh, my God. <laughs> never met him. Like, I knew he had stories. And I knew, like, Alan would say, you need to sit down. And I knew. Never met him. And it was like how that actually went on was literally like going. I don't think I ever even cried. I just ha- had a baby and I had to work and I had to get things going and I had to, I had to reinvent myself. I had to. What did you tell your parents? What did you do? They were just like. There was stuff had happened. Right. That kind of sounds a little bit unbelievable. He had got a job down the country and I was like, okay, we'll move to the country. Mm. My dad was like, you're not going to the country. And I was bringing out stuff to the boot of the car. And he was into shooting. And of course, because my family don't like guns mm. in any shape or form, mm. hunting, or we don't like hunting on the land, mm. we, just don't like, we just don't like anything like that, obviously because of my dad. Mm-hmm. So he, I knew he had guns for, for rabbits and all that yeah. kind of stuff. I didn't want anything like that brought into my house or anything mm. like that. So his friend used to have them stored in a gun cabinet or something. Very ignorant to all of this. I, mm. I probably know a little bit more, but I was then. And I remember going out to the boot of the car um, to look in the back of the car. And the two guns were in the back of the car. And it was one of those things. Do you ever just get this feeling? And we were moving, he was going to work in this in this company down in, in Tipperary. And we had a house rented. And he was starting the job on Monday. This was Saturday. No, sorry. This was Friday. And he was starting the job on Monday. And we had to drive down. We had a rented house down there. He had done all this. And obviously I was still on crutches mm. and all the rest. So he was this great job. Something similar to what he did before them. kind of That kind mm. of salary. And I was like, but he's my husband. And I know he's not the greatest. I know all that stuff. Mm. But I have a child for this man. And I have to try and make this work. My parents were like, you're not going anywhere. And I was like, I'm, I have to go. So... um I walked in and I sat down on the sofa and he went off in the car and my dad said, just do me one favour. Ring the job. Ring the job. And if they say that he's starting on Monday, I would be sad, but go, if that's mm-hmm. what you want. So I rang the job and I was like, can I be put through to the HR department? And no problem. Went. And I said, I gave him his, gave his, his full name. And said, uh, I believe he's starting work there on Monday. I'm his wife. I just want to make sure because we're driving down from Dublin. And the girl said, we had an application form from this, from that name, but he was unsuccessful in his application. (gasps) So I was like, "Okay, thank you so much. 
hung up the phone and I got the piece of paper that had the details of the house and I rang the letting agent and I was like, hi, we're coming down tonight to collect the keys of, gave yeah. the address and she was like, um, I'm sorry, nobody's rented that place. So I was like, okay, thank you very much. So he came back and he was like, are you ready? So this was like all the suitcases, Sam's bags packed, everything. Thing. And I was like, I'm not going. And he was like, why? And I said, because you have no job. And he was like, I do. I do have a job. I'm there making mistakes. He's on the phone talking to himself, saying hello, hi, making, you know, doing all this. I could see everything. All of a sudden the veil fell and I could see everything in front of me. It was like one of those when you see in the movies, all these lights start coming on. And my only thing in my mind was, he's bringing me and Sam away from here. And he has those guns in the back of the car. Mm. How desperate was he to get away with what he'd been getting away with? Well, he was extremely desperate because he disappeared. He went. And I found him recently because I had to. Uh, So I only found him last year. I hired a private detective. Um, I should have done that years ago, by the way. Mm. But I did it. Um, everybody goes, you know, chasing people for maintenance and all that kind of mm. And everyone came into my head. Like, my thing was work. I got work and got started and mm. whatever. Um, and I found him. So we fa- I actually didn't find him. I, I found him, but we haven't seen him or anything mm. like that. Because, believe it or not, after all these years, I'm not divorced. Fuck off, Lisa. There's nowhere to save, no, nobody to serve papers on. I didn't know where he was, couldn't find him anywhere. So there was nobody to serve papers on. So with a bit of information that I had, so our marriage cert and all of those things, so I had his date of birth, I've had all those things, sent those over to this guy in the UK. He found him in three days. So it cost me 600 oh. sterling to find the man that I had disappeared for 30 years. It took him three days to find him. Give me two seconds, Lisa. Yeah. Paul, Eileen and Ema are out the back. So, yeah, we found him so we could serve papers on him. So at, at this moment, that's all going through at the moment because my... my Is he my, in the UK? He's in the UK. Yeah. He's in, and he was into sailing and all that. And the worst thing, I remember sort of seeing the pictures, they actually can't send a photograph of him. Right. They just give you, because it's against the law to mm. photograph somebody. And thing, uh, thing. So they give you a complete picture of the man, what he's doing now. It's definitely him. This is his number. This is this. So they give you all of the details they possibly can. The only thing they don't give you is an actual photo. So he wasn't on any social media. He hadn't changed his name. We always thought he changed his name. He'd never changed his name. He was going under the same name. Everything was the same. It was the guy. It was the guy. And it was like, when I had the piece of paper in my hand, the email that came through... And it was a picture of his, where he was living. And it was facing out onto the sea. And the really weird thing was, I went, that bastard is sitting over there in one of these seaside towns, looking at the sea. And he never even rang or sent a letter or a card or I'm alive, I'm dead, I'm anything in 30 years or 29 years then. But yeah, so it was like the weirdest thing ever. And then I had, I was annulled. My marriage was annulled by the church. Mm. Um, and that was done on breach of contract. That's a whole other story. Mm. Um, and so I was annulled. 
I kind of was comfortable with that. Mm. I don't know why I never really pushed to get divorced until now. Um, maybe because I never wanted to remarry. So mm. there's probably a lot to do with it. Um, so, yeah. So that was it. And then the rest, the story just begun, begins of, of the journey then that happened after that. But I ended up with it in a relationship with a guy, great guy, for years. But we were... I was too busy. We were good at dating, but we were never good at life. Never, we never even attempted to be good at life. Like I stayed at home, with my mom and dad. He lived with his mom and dad. You know, he moved out, bought his own place. I still stayed with my mom and dad because I had Sam. Mm. I had to stay there. I did have a solid life for him. Mm. I never wanted anybody meeting. You know, we were together such a long time. The, the guy I was with, he was a really good guy. Um, no problem. Like. No issues with him. Mad, like mm. really funny, all of those things. But we never did life. We did we did dating really well, mm. but not life. Um, we broke up. Um, we were together for years. I mean, I think we broke up when I was like maybe 38. And we were together since I was like 26. Wow. So that length of time. We broke up all those times. I was back in the beauty industry, um, opened up my salons, was flying um, was running a racetrack, doing loads of different things, um, but had the business, had the beauty business going constantly. Mm. Um, obviously, started doing TV, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, became quite successful. Did a lot of A-list stars, um, a lot of uh, foreign people that were coming up, Americans, American movie stars coming into Dublin. I was looking after them, just true contacts. Um, I looked after some girl bands and all that kind of stuff. So things were going okay for me. Mm. I was pottering on there, you know, mm. I was making a living. Sam was getting big, everything mm. was going grand. Um, and I was still working for my dad. Um, but then all I did was really work. Mm-hmm. It was all about work. It's always been about work for me. And so I stayed single for years. And then I met a guy when I was 46 or 47. And I actually went into the worst relationship of my life. So all of this, all that coercive control, all of that kind of stuff all came in. This guy love bombed me. I was quite happy on my own. Mm. I was pottering on. I was fine. And uh, then met this guy. And I, this is when, he, you know, you asked me to do this thing, you know, I was wondering to myself, you know, what will I talk about? You know, there's. So much stuff to talk about. about. This can be like a four-part, at least. There's so much to talk about in life. There's so much. Even a night out at Noble, like, (laughs) Jesus Christ, there's so much that we can talk about. Literally, and then it gets to that point where, okay, so all that's a story. It's the story of my life, you know, and the amazing parts of my life and the absolute, you know, horrific things that happened Mm. um, and all that. And still coming out of it all with a relative relatively together right i'm not letting you go okay tell me about your mental health when did your mental health start getting affected i think that i was probably always prone to um slight mental health issues um i didn't really discuss anything that went on with me so i Probably, I was a, I was a self harmer, but in an unusual way, um, not in an evident way that anybody would see anything. 
At what age did that start? Um, I think that probably started in my 20s. Um, but it was only, there wasn't a word for it at the time. I didn't have a word for it. It wasn't something that was spoken about. It was the way I could get relief. I didn't drink, really. I didn't, never took drugs. I never got out into anything like that. So I had no real release. And at work was my only release, really, to be honest. Work, I could, could work. And um, so I started to do things. Um, to start off with something small, maybe, you know, I slap myself in the face, you know, things like that, banging my head with my my fists, all kind of low-key stuff. You'd be bruised, I'd be sore. But, you know, nothing you'd really ever see. Made up great excuses, what happened to your face in it? Oh, God, I banged it off the thing. And, of course, because of the person, type person I am, nobody really knew. Then it progressed. And then it really got bad um, after the relationship with the guy that I met during that relationship. He tortured me. Like, I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know when somebody knocks off their phone who's been talking to you all day, knocks off your phone, knocks off the phone and won't answer the phone calls. That, and then saying that I was crazy. He used to ring me, this is no word of a lie, 40 to 50 times a day. And he was still married, but I had met his wife. They were living together, but they were separated. Mm. But that wasn't the truth either. And I met his wife and she was a really nice woman. Mm. And I didn't realize she was probably in exactly the same situation that I was in. But she was trying to get rid of him, probably. Mm. And he was an absolute nightmare. He actually destroyed every bit of what I had, every bit of... The, my gumption was gone. And of course I still had my dad. Of course, all of those things were still there. The family was still there, all of that. But they didn't like him and they could see it. They could see what was happening. I couldn't because what was I doing? Working. So when he started to do all these things and all of these horrible things, like saying the most bizarre things, that you wouldn't even imagine a human being saying to somebody that they supposedly loved. And then he, we were in town one day and he was like, let's look in the shop. And we were looking in this jeweler shop and he said, oh, I'm not like window shopping, you know, like fantasy shopping. Mm. And I seen this ring and uh, he was like, do you want to try it on? And I was like, no, because it seemed like bad luck to try on rings. I, I know that sounds really mm, No, I know. Because I'm a very kind of spiritual person. Mm. Through all of these things, I've always had my spiritual side, which has always been really important. So I went back and I trained as like um, reflexology. Well, because beauty and all of those kind of stuff of went course. hand in hand. Mm. So I kind of di- diversified into all that kind mm. of spiritual stuff, which really was very grounding for me. Mm. Um, he used to say things to me like, I seen the devil. And I used to say to him, your darkness will never dim my light because I live in the light. I live in the, in the light. I've always lived in the light. I live in the bright. So I thought I could help him. Like I thought I could help my husband. Like I thought I could help every man that was in my life. I thought I could help. I could see he had problems. I could see he had issues, but he didn't drink. Okay. And that was one of those big things. Well, he doesn't drink. Mm. So at least I didn't have that to worry about because mm. I'd always had the drinking issues with any of the boyfriends. Mm. So this guy was there and then eventually I was so terrified 
to end this relationship because I didn't know what he was capable of doing. And I couldn't turn around and say to my family because they were like, they could see it, but they didn't think they could get through to me. They mm. could just think, Lisa's like, she's been single for so long. She looks like she's happy. She's mm. doing all this. I mean, I had a great life at this stage. I Before that, I was with, out with Alan and Carl and mm. all the lads and great girlfriends, great social life, everything. With him was like him and me. And because I wasn't able to manage a relationship, I didn't know. I wasn't capable of managing relationships. I was still, I'm still not. Mm. When that relationship ended, he bought me a diamond ring. And I was like, he was like, don't think of it as an engagement ring. But I was like, you're married. You're still married. Mm. I spoke, I've met, I met your wife. Like, I've met your children. I've, like, so I met, but I didn't realise he was an absolute fucking head case. Like, an absolute head case. And he tortured me. Tortured beyond. Like, I started to be jumpy. Like, I'd be afraid walking down to get my car. It was All this started to happen. Um, I can't, he never laid a finger on me or anything like mm. that. That would have I know that sounds terrible for it to say this. Mm. If I had walked in with a black eye, the world would have seen it. Exactly. It was the mental torture this guy put me through. Mm. The pure mental torture. Like, it was horrific. So being in that... So all of that invisible padding or or that padding that I'd put underneath myself to protect Mm. myself... When that all, it was eroded and eroded, and I, the business went, everything went, I was gone. I was just a shell of myself. But I was like, I'm going to make a go of it. I'm going to, I'll do it again. I'll, I can build it again. It'll mm. happen again. And then I was really not well. I couldn't tell you what was wrong with me. I couldn't explain to you what was wrong with me. I knew that the veil was falling and the illusion of who Lisa was mm. was starting to show. So all of my bravado, all of my covering up for all of the years, all of the stuff that I had done, all of a sudden the kinks started to show and I couldn't stop them. I couldn't stop the picture mm. disintegrating in front of everybody. And even though I always had my makeup on, I always had my hair done, I always had whatever, I started to do further harming to try and just get rid of that pain. So the harming, the self-harming got a bit more and more thing. But I made excuses for it. I've fallen, hurt myself. I did this, I did that. All that kind of stuff. Then I got into burning myself and that kind of stuff. And burns are much easier to hide and... um, Again, I was doing that. And then eventually, I could not see the way out of this. I just couldn't see a way of it. And, you know, I was still looking after my dad and still with my mom and still had Sam and everything seemed to be great. And one night I just sat down, um, wrote maybe 10 letters to everybody that meant something to me, individual letters to some people, um, my mom and dad, individual letters, my brothers, my friends. My son and I sat down. I took forty sleeping tablets, and a girl who doesn't drink really washed that down with a bottle of vodka I bought in Tesco's. I'd went and I'd planned the whole thing, so I didn't realize that planning it the way I planned it and the execution of somebody who just 
does it on a whim like that maybe is in a bad place i've had a few drinks they're in a bad place but when you plan it in the in the method in which i had planned it it's looked on a bit differently um because there wasn't an it wasn't a a fast act Mm. it wasn't like something i'd done in the moment Mm. i planned it Mm. changed my bed put on a nightdress lay in the bed never expected to wake up again that was just the way it was i never expected to wake up my poor mother of course i lived in the house um my poor mother came down to call me the next morning was no budging in me all of a sudden of course ambulances and all that were called again they didn't even think my mom didn't even see the letters on the coffee table nobody seen the letters on the coffee table it was just a case get her out so the ambulance came in and i was brought out and into beaumont hospital and between the jigs and the rails obviously and my niece was there and i said to her i said please what well, i eventually all the treatments were done and i was be- very lucky that very lucky that i didn't take something like um paracetamol or something mm. like this i was just out of my i was just gone i was out of mm. my head and i remember opening my eyes and seeing people and going i didn't think i was ever going to have to fit even in that all that i did not think i was going to have to face these people again mm. and explain myself i thought they would be better off if i wasn't here they would be better off if i wasn't here they would make better lives themselves they'd be stronger i wouldn't be jumping in to save people all the time i was out i was over it was gone my story had been told and I was of no benefit to anybody in this world. I didn't see any value in me anymore. And then I was just, and I I say this all the time and people go, what do you mean you were just lucky? I was lucky that that time that I had that event, suicide event, that that night a man came in, I didn't know who he was, this was like, you're talking like nearly, I don't know how many hours, I'm not very sure of the hours, mm. a long time later. And this man came in and he was the, he was like the head of psychiatry in, in Beaumont Hospital. And I went from there into services very quickly. So I went from being in Beaumont mm. into services really, really quickly, which for a lot of people, they can't get into services. Mm. And I understand that. Mm. And, and I do know I was very lucky. Again, nothing to do with finances. Mm. I went into the HSE. That's yeah. where I went. HSE, that's how I en- where I ended up. And I ended up in the day hospital in Swords. Um, in uh, Coram Clinic in Swords. And through all the jigs and the reels and going in every single day. When I mean I did not miss a day, I did not miss a day getting on all the medications, discovering, and I discovered, they discovered through all of the things that was going on that I had a thing called borderline personality disorder. And what that means is there's lots of different types of borderline personality disorder. There's people that get very angry and people that get very uh, happy, you know, different. uh, Mine is like I have a show reel. Okay. So I have this reel that I show to you Mm. and I show to everybody else and then there's another personality. Okay. That nobody knows. So they said to me, they described it to me like you have the show reel. So when I would go into my psychiatrist or my counselor or all, all the psychotherapy, all I would have this reel. I'd be sitting there dressed like I mean I wasn't hanging to look like I was hanging on by a thread or anything. Mm. I mean, to say something kind of 
But I went into the day hospital for the first time and I was all dressed up. And one of the patients, my fellow patients, Ooh. asked me, was I the new doctor? And I actually said yes. Jesus. I was like, yes. Because I was so convinced that I was not. There was, I convinced that I could help these people. Yeah. I remember the, the, the uh, nurse coming in going, Lisa is a patient. And I was like, 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 ha ha. Like it was literally, that's how crazy it was. I was so crazy that I thought that I was, I wasn't crazy. Mm. But I was so delusional that mm. I thought I was able to bullshit my way out of this. Mm. I thought I was able, going to be able to pull the wool over every psychiatrist's eyes, every therapist, every psychotherapist. I thought I could f- fill them with enough crap that they would literally go, she's absolutely perfect. Mm. But as I said, the seams were showing. There was, I was gone. And the... The, the self-harming was very prevalent, very, very much there. The arms. Did the people find the letters? My niece hid them for me. I asked her. I said to her, will you do me a favour and hide the letters? And she went, oh, God, love her. I mean, she's a brilliant. She's absolutely, I can't tell you what, like, I have an amazing family. And I know I keep going on about it, but I really mm. do have a really good mm. family. And she was, she was young. She was like, not 30 she was probably 26 maybe and she ran and she got all the letters and I lived in another part of the house so it wouldn't mm. have been somewhere like my mum would have had to physically go down into where I lived mm. to go and find these letters and obviously that wasn't happening the only mm. thing they were down to get pajamas and stuff like that for me and she went and she got rid of all the letters to this day oh well she never knew where she got rid of them I asked her, where did you put the letters? I mean, because obviously the last thing I wanted them, because I thought I was going to be able to bullshit everybody when I got home. Yeah. I thought it was going to say, it was a mistake. No, no, no. I, you know, I just couldn't sleep. I took two, I took two extra time. I thought I was going to be able to bullshit everybody, everybody that I wasn't sick or I was fine. And um, I actually only found the letters. I found out where she hid them. I actually was moving and I pulled out a drawer and underneath the bottom drawer of like a heavy table, she had pulled out the drawer and put all the letters underneath the bottom drawer and closed the drawer. And never would that drawer be taken out unless I was actually physically moving. I took out the door and all these yellow letters were there. Oh. And I reached my hand in and I was like, oh, is this the letters? Believe it or not, I was actually delighted to see the letters. Did you read them? Yeah, I read them. But I read them when I was better. Like, so I Did they them. help? They let me see how bad I was. They let me see how bad I was. I, I went, I, I, and, and I, if anybody is suffering with mental health, when they say, go to the clinic, go to the clinic. Mm. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to get up every morning, get ready and go in and sit with people that I didn't think understood me or mm. that we were from completely different backgrounds, um, different work ethics, um, at the end of the day, mental health touches everybody. Mm. It doesn't matter whether you're a doctor or whether you're like me, a, a, what, an entrepreneur or a mm. jack of all trades, which we used to call it mm. all the time, that could do like most things or somebody. It affects everybody in different ways, but anybody can be affected by it. The loneliness of anybody suffering with mental health is so sad and so horrific because I know what it feels like to 
to be absolutely like as if nobody can understand you. Nobody. Nobody can see your pain. Nobody. And I think half of the cutting and the burning and all of that kind of stuff was not that I ever showed it because I always kept my sleeves down. Mm. Was kind of a thing like that I wanted to go. Can you see the pain I'm in? Can you see the pain? Because I can't explain it to you. And then I went all the time. I never missed this hospital. Every day. Go up. Go in. Leave the hospital. Go back and pretend everything was okay. My dad could not deal with it. My dad just would say, you never tried to do anything. Sure you didn't, Lisa. That was only a mistake, wasn't it, Lisa? And I'd say, yeah, dad, of course it was. It was a mistake. I couldn't sleep. You know what I'm like? Because I didn't sleep. I never slept. Mm. I was like a, a, a person that could survive on one hour. and was proud of that. Mm. They didn't realize that I was actually completely sleep deprivated by the time I'd actually got to being diagnosed with all I was in complete sleep deprivation I was in everything that I was doing was wrong so I ended up then being put on started off they started off very small mm. they start you off with something like an your antidepressant and then you'll discover you know you have rumination it's called where you ruminate about maybe suicidal thoughts or all of this kind of stuff and then that goes into the more psychiatric type medicines antipsychotic type things that you're given um which are great in 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 the right doses and everything that's supposed to be i i would be a person that would highly recommend pharmaceuticals along with the dbt which is dialectical behavioral therapy, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and all of the other therapies that go with that, as well as your Reiki, as well as your reflexology, as well as your angels, as well as throw the every, kitchen sink at it. Throw everything at it. Like literally throw everything at it. And hopefully you get out of the other side. I ended up, unfortunately, big wake up call was I ended up in Ashling House, which is the medical psychiatric unit in Beaumont Hospital. And and again, this is another thing of being stripped of anything that you ever believed that you were of if you ever believed you were any better or any worse mm-hmm. than me. This is this is when they call you stripping you down. Mm-hmm. I walked in there, I had tried to slip my neck and I went in, I was with my psychiatrist and she said, What's I had a bandage on my neck. And uh, she said, I think we need I think you need to go into into Ashling House and I was like no I don't like absolutely not I mean I'm fine it's, it was like I was doing my hair and I then I I was like doing this and I thought I seen this and, like I could talk my way out of all of this stuff I thought I could mm. they could see through me so I was admitted into Ashling House and as I was walking in the door I walked in again all dressed up hair done makeup done all the rest and I had to bring a, an overnight bath bring stuff with me mm. and I walked in the in the door and I'm sure you know where Ashton House is it's it's the building that's facing Beaumont it's on the grounds of, of like kind of nearly under the car park mm-hmm. and um I walked in and the nurse was there waiting for me and uh I was like told her my name she's like hi welcome um can you take out your bag open your bag I was kind of looking at her going what does she mean and they took out the laces from my shoes to cut off the the things for this, the tightening straps for around my waist on my pajamas, everything cut, cut anything that you could do any damage with. My perfume taken away from me, glass bottles, nothing, no plastic, no nothing. And I was standing there, like standing there, like 
as if you're going, are you telling me you're taking like everything? They were like, everything. Wow. And you're stripped of, of everything. You've no, you've no uh, house coat um, belt. You've no belt from your house coat. You've no, you've nothing. You have absolute, so anything they can physically do damage to you is gone. It's taken mm. away. And again, I can't say talk, speak highly enough about the the HSC when you're in. Mm. I do understand a lot of people cannot get in and they cannot get appointments and they're in desperate states and there's families that are suffering. I know, and I know my heart breaks. But if there was any advice I can give to somebody, if you get one appointment and they tell you to come back, never drop because they only give you, it's really three strikes and you're out. Mm. You miss three appointments, you're out. I never miss, I've never missed one. And that's in seven years. I still go. I don't go to day hospital now. Mm. But when I was in um, the psychiatric unit, I was brought into a room. It's it's not like one floor of the cuckoo's nest, which I thought mm. it was going to be. Um, I was brought into a room, um, quite a large room with a shower, um, bath, like a, uh, an ensuite, mm. a bed, and nothing really else in it. No curtains or anything like that. And there's like a, a glass, see-through glass piece, and which they can look in at you. Your light's never off. And you get up every morning, you go and you collect your medication. Your medication's not brought to you. It's not like hospital where your medication, mm. you walk up and you collect your medication at a, at a window. And you go and you take your medication and you take your drink and you walk out and, you, and then you just, you're in the, fr- the, the open area and you see all of the people that have all of this serious issues that are going on. Um, there's art classes, there's all of these different things, but there's screaming, there's it's it's it can be quite terrifying and for me it was absolutely terrifying to see how bad mental health can go and how bad you were how bad i was i was there i was a patient like i was in there i was the patient i was one of those people and i realized oh my god and it was terrifying and there isn't a case of like you go in you, which i did say i don't think i'm that bad i think you can let me out now mm-hmm. they were like you can't you no, no, you have to be let out by, you have to wait, be assessed. That takes a day or two. Then you have to go in front of a, um, some doctors um, that are, have studied your, your thing. You're interviewed. You're asked, will you do anything to yourself again? If they're not happy, you don't get out. This is, you're in. Um, I know that there were some people there that could sign themselves out and they could go shopping and stuff like mm. that. I wasn't on, I wasn't one of those people. I was in. And eventually then I, I actually, to be honest, I sat down in front of them all and I said, I have seen more than I have. I will promise you I will never do anything again. I never want to end up in here again. Please, I beg you, let me go. And they were like, do you realize the seriousness of what you've been doing? And it was literally like me. It was like a light bulb went over my head and I went, Yes, I realise the seriousness of what I've been doing to myself. I didn't think it was affecting anybody. And that is the worst thing. Because you think, because people will say, you, I've met people have said, was that not very selfish act, Lisa, to do that, leave all the... The worst thing about mental health is that it is selfish. And I'm saying it. Mm-hmm. But it's not selfish in the way you think. It's not, you have no sense of self. 
There is no self. So is it selfish? It's selfish because there is no self. There is no. So you don't feel that your loss or the, you being gone is going to impact anybody. Will they cry? Probably for a day or so. But will their lives be better off not having to deal with my face, my head? my Until I realised everybody loved me. They wanted me with them. They wanted me to be doing the thing. And literally, I can, like, I would do anything. Like, there's nothing I wouldn't do. So I went back and I continued to go to Curran. I went to DBT, which is Dialectical Behaviour Therapy, which is learning all these small tools to get you out of a bad vibe. Cut out alcohol completely. Mm. Never a big drinker, but I realised drink wasn't suiting me. Mm. Um, I was feeling sad. You know, instead of feeling happy, I was feeling sad. And I was so aware of my mental health that I was like, oh, no drink, can't. And uh, the cocktail of drugs that I was on, I'm on. I'm not going to lie about it. Mm. I am still on a cocktail mm. of drugs. Medications that I treat so religiously. So I was on this thing called black boxed, which means that I could only collect my medication every week. I wasn't allowed to have any more than, at one stage it was every day. Then I was allowed to collect it every week. And um, I wouldn't be allowed to have any more than what was given in this mm. plastic box. And I'd go down to the pharmacy and there was a really lovely pharmacist and I knew she knew because she was obviously taking out the antipsychotics. Mm. She was taking out things. She was like 16 or 18 tablets a day and um, she was taking everything out and uh, putting them into the blister packs and all that. And she was really good. She was a really good pharmacist. She never really said anything, but she used to just say things to me like, how are you? How are you doing? And she was a really nice girl. And she allowed me to have my delusions. You know, mm. she really did. She allowed me to be, when I walk in with my makeup on and mm-hmm. talking about makeup and things, like talking about beauty. Of course, it wasn't, in, I wasn't, wasn't capable of working. I wasn't able to work. Um, talk about all of those things. She allowed me to do all that. She really, you know, was a lovely mm. girl. And it was only then when I started to go into a much better place mentally. I watch my mental health like anything. It's like something that I always am very, very careful of. And that's really, and I've given a big, huge story about all my life tonight. But the main thing I wanted to really probably speak about was, was mental health and that it can happen to anybody and that, you know, there is help, but I know it's difficult. And I know lots of people that are struggling to get somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get in, when you get in to the, H- the HSE's mm-hmm. place and you do what they tell you to do, and I know you don't want to. I know you don't want to get up out of bed. Mm. I know you want to do everything to dampen those emotions. You want to drink. You want to do drugs. You want to take all the diazepams that are in your pack for the whole week mm. and take those and take all those diazepams together. I know. I know all the tricks because I sat down to try and do all the The only thing I never did was I never touched illicit drugs like mm. anything. I've never done. I've never done mm. drugs. That's... Sometimes I always wonder, thank God I didn't, I'd probably be loving them. <laughs> um, I didn't. Uh, but I did do the salpidine thing. I'm sure, like, mm. as a lot of people do that mm. to numb the numb the feelings. Mm. So you don't realise that you are taking things. Um, I don't believe in being, being. Um, uh, I think we should be, you know, allowed monitor ourselves on mm. whether we take salpidine or don't. I, that's my, another issue but, <laughs> Because um, I know people who genuinely do need yeah. to take it uh, for genuine pain and they're being questioned by mm. some 
18 year old behind the counter I know. which is you know difficult yeah. for people but mm. again I understand that as well mm. um how are you today I'm really good mm. really good I'm very much involved in I've always been involved in in some type of charity mm. work it wasn't here it was mm. um I stood socks for the homeless and all that I still do a very mm. very strong affiliation with the homeless in Dublin um I always say there for the grace of God uh, because of my family, obviously, I was very blessed mm-hmm. to have a family, a house to go to. So when my mental health got really bad, there was people there. Mm-hmm. Most people that are on the streets maybe have mental health issues mm-hmm. and there is nobody there to catch them. Somebody was there to catch me. So I was caught. So I have a big, I've always had all my life. My father had always said there for the grace of God. Um, so I always done stuff for the homeless people in Dublin um, on my own, my own ways, mm. you know, sleeping bags out there, doing it on a couple of nights during the week, brought Sam out, mm. Christmas presents, all that kind of stuff, chasing down, being chased, funny stories, being chased down the street by guys thinking we were going to rob them and we were giving them presents, all the mad stuff. Mm. And then I got involved in um, a charity in Bangladesh, uh, which is for, it's, it's a different world, a money back, but I was there mm. this year. Um, through a, a guy called Kumar, he's my accountant, and um, he's from Bangladesh, and discovered that. So I think through, so my recovery to this point is great. I had to, I had to jump out of my comfort zone a lot, you know, like step out and be counted and, you know, realise that we are all very, very, very similar um, I know the, the diagnosis of borderline personality is can kind of be quite shocking because everybody goes on Google straight away like I did. Mm. Like I Googled it and my sister Googled it and anybody who Googled it and went, you're not that, you're not that. You couldn't be, you know, they're, they're going from extremes. And of course, you're watching YouTube and you're seeing other people with it. It's so different for everybody that it's it's hard to kind of explain. But do now I'm really good, but I'm on my med. I'm on my, I'm on my meds. Yeah, like I take my medication. I mm. don't like I used to go to every time I'd go to the psychiatrist. I go to the psychiatrist every six weeks, mm. and I'd sit down. I go, can you take me off the tablets because the antipsychotics make you put on weight. Mm. So obviously, I don't want to put on weight, and I don't have be, have weight. And I can, can you take me off these tablets? I've stopped asking that question. I've stopped. The, it was said to me one day: "It's your mind or your body, Lisa." You make your choice. And I was like, well, I'll never go. I never want to go back there again. Mm-hmm. So I'll carry the extra couple of stone and I'll more than a couple of stone and I'll work on that separately. I'm carrying it. I'm not even on medication. So don't <laughs> no, you know what it is? It's that thing like you're going, you know, like how do you turn around and go when you're going to the gym and mm-hmm. you're like, which I have done a hundred times mm-hmm. and you go into the gym, and you're standing there and they're going, we can stand up in the skills. You're not going to turn around and tell this, well, actually, I'm on an awful lot of antipsychotics. Mm, mm. You might turn around and say to them, yeah, do you do? Like, I mean, I, I want to ask this question. How many people go no when they're asked, have you got asthma? Have you got any of these I things? Know. I mean, like, you don't want to answer them. So you just go, no, 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 mm. no, no, no. All the way, all the way down. Unless it's something like heart mm-hmm. or something like, you know, really like that. If you get this done. Exactly. You would, you know, it would mm. be dangerous. That's the time I'm ticking. No, 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 mm. I never. No, don't. I mean, no, nothing. Um, depression, anxiety. No. Mm. Because you're like going, I'm going to have a facial. Yeah. You know, I know what's involved. <laughs> yeah. I know you don't really seriously need to know. Yeah. 
okay if I was on like blood thinners. Obviously, mm. I know I'm a beauty. I was a beauty therapist for thirty years. Mm. I know beauty therapy. Mm. I know it. But you know, sometimes I kind of go, yeah, that is a very valid question, and other times I'm gone. That's not, you know. Mm. So, and I used to always when I take people, you know, I'm so sensitive about people's mm. um, consultation forms. I'm really sensitive. I always have been from a very like when I started like beauty like. I started, I did my first, my beauty course when I was 17. So that's like during all of this stuff, that was happening as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting the honor of having these, these consultation cards with people's details on them. You know, you put them away and you think. Mm-hmm. So people, from, you know, people's privacy. I always say, you know, if somebody tells me a secret, guaranteed that will never come out. Yeah. I'm telling you a lot about me, mm. about me, mm. about Lisa. Mm-hmm. But you would have to drag me over the coals (laughs) for me to tell you about anybody else. Yeah. So that's the way it's always been. I mean, but I will say this thing. Of course, I've lost my dad. My dad passed away. This is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about your dad. Because it was huge for the community, but it must have been huge. Everything for you guys. We have the joy. I I have the joy of um, being able to nurse him at home, which isn't possible for everybody. Um, and especially in the house I live in, we could set up full room, all that. I understand that not everybody can do it. So please, if somebody is suffering and they have to go into hospice, a hundred percent, a hundred percent it's the best place. Mm. I was lucky that I obviously have a little bit of background that I was able to do injectables and stuff like that and put in injections and do my dad's. So my dad was perfect, uh, paralyzed, but perfect, mm-hmm. and um, got, he had got a mark, a mark is like a, it's like a mark, it's, it, we call it a mark, it's like a bruise, it looks like a bruise mm-hmm. on his hip, about four years ago, mm, four years ago, and it ended up, it was a pressure mark, and I went in to check him one morning because my mum and I did all the medical, everything for my dad. We mm-hmm. never had anybody in the house. We didn't need anybody. We did it all on our own. My mum definitely did it all on our own. Mm-hmm. And um, I was getting my dad ready uh, to get up, get out. And uh, I noticed this little kind of like a shadow. And I was like, Dad, what's that? And he was like, what's what? And he'd got a new car. Um, a new Mercedes. And they changed the seats and they were bucket seats. And he was down at the races and he sat in the bucket seat for like, and the pressure had caused this mark on the side. And then we don't know how long it was there. But anyhow, it ended up that it was what looks like a tiny little spot from the outside actually is huge on the inside. So that happened and we were in Beaumont with that. And uh, God, we were like, I was up for pre-COVID. So I was in the hospital every day, Mm. every day and night. I would just stay in the hospital because my dad's paralyzed. So you'd say to them, everybody say, can you, can you, can you, can you stand? And I'm going, he's paralyzed. Mm. So no, he can't. So we just stayed in the hospital Mm. with him. I'd come home, my mama'd be up because he need, he he couldn't get up and brush his teeth. He couldn't go and have a shave. He couldn't go to the bathroom. Couldn't get out. So we had to have all of that. We had to, we had 
our own kit. We were we had everything organised. Mm. So we got out of hospital and that's the first time we ever had people coming to the house to help us care for him because it went from him jumping from the wheelchair to the bed or jumping to having to use hoists but we couldn't have any shearing on the skin and all that kind of stuff. So we started with the hoist. We had the crackle and we learned mm. how to use the hoist. Swinging him, I put the hoist on upside down. He fell on his head. He went <laughs> He went from a manual chair into an electric chair. He went mm. flying out the door 100 mile an hour, flew off the steps, broke his leg. Jeez. Like loads of mad things happened and we'd all... We'd laugh our way through all of it, mm. like laugh our way through all of it. I remember his leg was literally swinging in my hand and he was like, do you think it's broken? And I was like, it is broken. And he was like, sure, I don't feel it. Because of course, it doesn't feel a broken leg. But I'm like, what can happen is that, you know, of course, me, the, the um, Google yeah. doctor, everything gone down. I've been researching things in my whole life for mm. my dad. Um, and we did everything. Like we went away and got all those mad treatments done away and all that kind of stuff and got ro- got measured up for Robocop stuff and Stuff that didn't work. Mm. And um, we, he brought him over, his leg was broke. But anyway, we ended up getting carers in. They were great lads. Um, two lads come in in the day. It was a bit of a break for my mom not to be doing the kind of thing all the time. They were more like family members, to be honest. They'd mm. come in the door, do whatever. How are you? How's it going in? My dad was very particular about who mm. come in. If you have grass crack, I'd be coming up to give him injections in the morning. He'd be like calling me. And Norse Ratchet and all these things. <laughs> so my dad, all of a sudden, the lads called me in one day and he said, your dad has a bit of a mark on his leg. And I was like, OK. I went out. I said, a bit of a mark? That's not a mark. It's bloody bruise. It's huge. So I was like, that's something. I went and did straight did his blood. So dad, dad never had anything. The blood sugars were through the roof. And I had everything, blood pressure monitors, blood, everything you could manage, all there, mm. just because we could do it all. At home and uh, brought him down to the doctor. And when he was down, the doctor said, yeah, your blood sugars are very high. But while we have you here, we'll give you the jab, the um, COVID, COVID uh, jab. And we, he was like, you know, I don't mix. Like nobody comes near me and everybody mm. has masks on and everybody like we were like, don't go near my dad. Um, and everybody would talk to, his, to him in the office, like from far away. Yeah. And um my mom, of course, was isolating as well. So mm. they were isolating. They were isolating up on the farm. Nobody was there. Mm. Like, nobody was mixing. I was the designated person to die. Mm. Like, it was me who went to do the shopping. Yeah. You know, who's going to be doing the mm. trolleys out to yeah, do the shopping? Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, my dad started losing weight. I was like, my dad was, like, strong. Like, even though he was 77, mm. he was, like, big shoulders on him, you know, from lifts up and down, mm. lifting himself up and down on the wheelchair. He used to, like, do these press-ups constantly. And um, he came down to from the stables, and he was coming up the uh, ramp, and he said, Lisa, come into the bedroom. And I went in the bedroom. He said, I think we could better call the ambulance. And I said, okay, Dad. I went out. My mom was going to Italy, and she was like, I'm not going. And I was like, you go. I actually... Threw her on the plane to Italy. Yeah. Amanda was over there. She was over in Lake Como. Threw her on the thing. Because I was like, there's nothing you can do. COVID's here. Yeah. Like, we can't get into the hospital. But I knew, being the personality that I have, yeah. I would bally rag my way into everything. Again, my dad's paralysed. Nobody can manage him in the hospital. They're like, we can't let you in. But because he was paralysed, I did get a dispensation mm. to get into the hospital. And then f- through the jigs and the reel and all the tests, they said he had a thing called endocarditis which was flora and fauna growing on the heart. And I said, what What can we do? And he was like, not much, but your dad is strong. And then he called me and he was like, your dad's had a heart attack. And I was like, and he was like, I don't. And then I, 
Then he rang me back and he goes, your dad's perfect. He's back. Like, it's weird. But they weren't calling all people to the hospital at this stage. Yeah. They were, because it was right in the height of COVID. Mm. So anyway, through the jigs and the reels, they ended up saying, he's never going to get out of hospital. And I was like, over my dead body, he's coming home. Yeah. And they were like, can you do these infusions? Which means they deliver these infusions every day to the house, every week to the house. You infuse them twice a day. So I was like, as soon as I get him home, I'll save him. Mm. I'll save my dad. I'll get him home, get him proper food, open the curtains, let him see the horses. We'd be running the horses up and down outside the bedroom window, mm. put a hospital bed in, which we hated. I mean, the only argument my mum and I have ever had in our lives were over the hospital bed. Mm. And um, had his room all set up, TVs, everything, you know, mm. I set up my office in the there with him. Everything was great. And so we got out in August, September, the early September. And I was doing the infusions and all the rest of me had great gas. Like every night, my mom would take the infusion out of the fridge at the pool for an hour that I'd go in. And then it kind of was getting a little bit, I think the doctors came and a couple of other things. And then we knew then there was something more going on, but we didn't want a diagnosis because I knew if we had got a diagnosis, it wouldn't have been good for my dad. Mm. For his mm-hmm. vim and vigor. Mm-hmm. And he used to say every night, you know, he'd be having his dinner every day. I'm going to eat this and I'd be back up in that office. I'm back up in the office. And you're trying to keep me out of that office. And I'd be like, you, listen, if you're ready to go up to that office, you get up to the office. Mm. But he had everybody in doing business at the side of the bed. He was chatting away. Everybody was in. Gary flew home from Canada. And uh, he, Gary flew home twice. First when he was in hospital, then again. And then the doctor came up and he just said um i was like dad why are you you in pain i'm still doing the infusions and he was yeah i'm in a lot of pain and the doctor came up and the doctor just said to me listen i'm going to give any just uh, a van arrived with just all of this stuff all the injections um the needles the um morphine everything was brought in and um the hospice came two nights she came first night was a lady called Mary, lovely lady. And we were like, no, no, we don't need the hospice. We're fine. We didn't realize we were actually in hospice care at this stage. They'd come, but they were just so lovely. We mm. didn't know. They were like, mm. and we were like, don't tell my dad you're from that. No, no, no. Well, I'm mm. just telling him, just telling mm. Mary, I'm just here to see mm. it. My dad was like, oh, how's it going, Mary? How's it going? Mm. But he was weak. He was getting weak. And uh, she was like, you, you, you just go to bed. And um, I was like, no, no, I'm not going to bed. No, you go to bed. Go up the next morning, Mary went. And then the next night did daddy's infusions, dad's infusions, chatting away to him. And he was tired, just tired. Sam, Liam, my brother Liam, Gary was home, my bam. And um, I walked down the stairs and I sat down and I just sat down. I literally sat down in the sitting room and the phone, my phone rang. And it was the lady, because your dad's breathing has changed. And as I ran up the stairs, Gary was coming out of one room. Sam was coming up the stairs. He heard me running. My mom was coming out of her room because obviously she was in a in a in a mm. different room because my dad was in the hospital bed, and they'd always st- share the same room. Mm. But because of the hospital bed and it was noisy, mm. the mattress was noisy, um, and we went in and my dad passed away, like so peaceful, so perfect. It was like. I couldn't tell you that it was any better of a passing. And for me, who's like a total daddy's girl, 
um, I said to the, the hospice nurse, I said, can I get him ready? And she was like, yeah. And I brushed his hair and washed his face and put his cream on and did him up and all the rest and put something under his mouth, to chin to stop his mouth opening and just had him there and just so peaceful, no tears, no nothing. Because I just was like, we have been so blessed. Like he should have died when he was 39. Mm. He was now 77. Mm. And we, he slipped quietly into into heaven and when I say I believe the difference between and this might be everybody's belief and this is but I believe there's a veil just a veil between the living and the dead because I have all I'm actually as I'm sitting here talking to you I can feel the shivers running up my back my father is with me in spirit all of the time how the family dealt with it as a whole when you have such a strong uh, patriot, like this strong man in the centre. He was the centre of our universe. He was the complete centre of our universe. Everybody he was just the centre of our universe. For it to go from there to him not being there it was like, this is weird. But he fe- it feels like he never left. So even though like his ashes are in the sitting room. I think you might have seen them, did you? Mm-hmm. His ashes, his picture, this candle lit all mm-hmm. the day, every day. And my mom goes, your dad's gone out. And I go, where is he gone? It's, it's a running joke. Yeah. The candle's gone out. Light the candle. I went to pick him up from, we had, again, it was just coming to the end of COVID. Mm-hmm. We had a funeral. The, the, the crematorium could not stop the people. They just couldn't stop the people. There were just hundreds of people. At his cremation. And um, again, it was non-religious. As I said, there was a, a, a priest there who did a lovely prayers. My dad was very much into Padre Pio. Um, he was a man that believed that he had appeared to him um, a couple of times. and um, But he wasn't a religious, great faith. Mm. Um, and we had his f- funeral and um, my friend was in the back row. Like, you know, a thing only a friend can say, mm. like, Alan and Carr were there, obviously, and whatever. And we all walked in the door. And when we were leaving, um, so all the family, all the grandchildren, there's loads of us. I mean, like, mm. like, we're literally, I don't know what we're like. We just keep reading all the time. There's millions of us. Um, and we have another one on the way. And we all walked into the thing. And we just remember going to, first of all, he never wanted to wear black, but we all wore black mm. because the boys wanted to. Um, we never wanted to be a sad he never wanted his life to be a sad occasion. Mm-hmm. And I did the eulogy and I didn't cry. And I haven't really cried. I miss him. I miss him more than words can say. But if I was to be crying, it would be for me. There was too much to do. My mom was really strong. There was so much other stuff going on. I have my moments where I just sit and I talk to him. I talk to him all the time. I feel like he's always there with me. It has caught me in the throat a few times. But so many people would say to me, you are always with your dialies. Just like, just you must be the most devastated. The most devastated were, like my brothers were brilliant. Like my sister was phenomenal. My mom was just a rock star. We all dealt with our grief in our own way. But we dealt with our grief. But the thing, the people that I've seen 
sobbing. Like the people that I was just broken hearted for. I was broken hearted for people. more, But it was the guys that my dad had touched their lives. That was the saddest thing I ever seen. Like young guys that would come up with a horse and talk to my dad about a horse. They were broken. And the saddest thing was an old man coming over. A man in his 90s. And he was just crying his eyes out at the at the crematorium. And I remember going, my God, he touched so many people. He touched so many people's lives. And how can I be sad when he lived a life that most people can only dream of living? And he had true love with my mom. They had a love story until they died, until the day he died. My mom is amazing. She does her best to keep it all going. It's still all going. Mm-hmm. We keep it going every day. And it's all in memory of my dad. Do you think, though, that to play devil's advocate? Yeah, please do. Your show reel. Do you think oh, this is the show reel? No. I would have said, if I wasn't coming here tonight to be really honest about everything, um, and again, of course, the initial stories are all just about my life, and that's, you know, everybody has stories. But to talk about the mental health aspect and to talk about, you know, what got me in, to talk about that is quite... Because, uh, no, I don't talk about it, you know, like I'm telling you, and probably if anybody's listened to this, there's going to be a lot of people who had never got a clue. Mm. I don't talk talk about it as mm. as as conversation piece, never did. Um, so tonight is actually talking to you about it is probably the first time I've ever spoken really out, outwardly about it. The majority, the reason I came here tonight was to talk about mental health mm. and to talk about how it can affect everybody. This is not my showreel, because if it was my showreel, I would never have told you about the mental health. I would have told you about all the amazing things I've done in my life. I would have told you about all the countries I've traveled to, all the stars I've worked on, all the people I've met. I would have told you about all the things that would have made you like laugh and joke Mm. and listen to all the people. Like, I mean, like sometimes I even wonder to myself, did that actually happen? Did Mm. I actually sing Patricia the Stripper with Christopher? Yes, (laughs) I did. I would have told you all of those stories. Mm. But what I wanted to tell you was I wanted to tell you the truth. Mm. And I wanted to be open and honest. And and if my journey and my mental health issues will just get one person to actually turn around and say, it's actually okay. It's okay. Dear Grant, I am suffering. I need to go to talk to somebody. It can happen to anybody. Mm. And never be worried. People try to put labels on you all the time. Labels help the doctors. Mm. That's what labels do. I've asked a hundred times, why do you call me, you know, borderline personality? Why are some people um, got uh, bipolar? Why are all, you know, everybody has seems to have to have a label. Mm. The only reason people have to have a label is that the doctors need to be able to put you into some. Mm. We are all individuals. We are all different. But through all of this. There is similarities between us. We are all Mm. human. So there has to be a way of filing us into some kind of categories. Mm. So I'm sure borderline personality, and I know, has hundreds of different ways it shows itself. Like um, bipolar disorder does. Like schizophrenia does. Like all of these disorders. And like the the thing that seems to be affecting everybody is generalised anxiety, Mm. which seems to be knocking the socks off people and they don't know what it is they don't know why they're suffering they have no idea 
And and I just want to say it can happen to anybody, even when you had a mad life like mine. So that's the end. That's really the... And, you know, we haven't even talked, and I think it'll be another conversation <laughs> another time, is the Bangladesh story, because that is a huge part of huge your life. Part of and the great work that you and Kumar do, like, there is just unbelievable. There's more There's more than me. There's uh, there's about 20 Irish people. Mm. And um, it started off with a hospital being opened, um, the Irish Friendship Hospital. We... This has all been self-funded. Um, Reason being is that we were waiting, because everybody was like, when I was in Bangladesh, they said, how can we give money to these children? Mm. How can we... We wanted to set it all up correctly and right, and mm. it's going to be no administration fees or anything like that. Mm. So anybody who, when the charity's up and running, mm. it will be... Their money will be going directly to the children. Mm-hmm. There is no administration fees there's no rent there's no things there's nothing mm. like that needs to be done we're all business people so we're all well able to manage mm. the running of the charity and when that happens i think it is that we should sit down because there is horrific stories the stories are just beyond i mean what i've seen in bangladesh between like sex trafficked children and the fact that the parents don't want them back because the stigma is too much um, the beauty of these children, the innocence of these children, and the reason that there isn't like a big Christian society in there mm. helping, like you have in Africa and places mm. like that, is because they're very devout Hindu or Muslim. Mm. So they're very much devout and they're very established in the relationship. So you're not going to get Christian charities going in. Yeah. You're only going to get individuals that are going in to help these people out. Mm. And it is a monthly um, thing to keep people in houses, keep the children safe, keep all of that done. But that is another day's work. But when the charity is set up, I'd love to come down and talk to talk you about, about it. it. And on that note, we leave it there. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks very much. For sitting down with me. And I know I was like, we're sitting down, we're sitting down. So I'm so glad we did. <laughs> Thanks Thank so you. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Thanks a million. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.